Hey, everybody, Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. Have you been around the internet for a while? Have you heard something about the Kalergi Plan or UN Agenda 2030? Do you think maybe they're just conspiracy theories? Well, a lady calls in who wants to know the truth, and we go on a deep diamond drilling dive into the depths of these ideas and what they mean for the West. Very, very urgent and important stuff for you to listen to. The second caller was a lady who wanted to know why I thought it was better to have sort of important value-based conversations face-to-face rather than typing away online on social media. I was a little confused as to why it was such a pressing issue for her until we got into her history. And then, well, let's just say the lights were switched on and all became clear. The third caller wanted to know, should I go into the British Army? And what does it mean to take orders in this way and point your guns in this way? So we had a good and thorough rummaging around his conscience with regards to this whole issue and what had happened in his life that ended up with him in this situation. So this is Stefan Molyneux. Please remember, follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux and please help out the show at freedomainradio.com slash donate. All right. Up first today, we have Dory. Dory wrote in and said, the UN Agenda 2030 and the UN World Population Prospects slash Revision 2015 clearly state that the legal migration from developing nations into Western nations is expected to be roughly 2.6 million people per year, every year, for the next 34 years and that population increases in Western nations over this period will be 80% due to immigration. And of course, the Western nations will pay the support for all these immigrants, many of whom are illiterate, have few if any employable skills, are ignorant of law and order, and bring with them totalitarian ideologies. Could you discuss this redistribution of the global population? as it relates to our Western values of self-determination and individual liberties. That's from Dory. Oh, hey, Dory. How you doing? Hey there, Stefan. Good. Thank you. And you? Um, well, that's a, quite a question. Um, <laughs> so it's, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a challenging set of information to uh, look at. Is there anything you wanted to add to what it is we're going to discuss based on the question? Um, well, uh, maybe just a hint of a background about how I happen to be asking that question. Do you think that would be good for listeners? Sure. Okay. Um, for me, it started about a year and a half ago. Uh, I have a daughter that lives in London, and I was reading the BBC so that I'd be on top of things. I could talk with her about what was going on in London. And I began to notice the migrant crisis. So this was midway through 2015. And uh, there were a few articles. There was one about uh, hundreds of thousands of migrants um, uh, going to Sweden. My husband is Swedish. My daughters are are, um, dual citizens, USA and Swedish. So I wanted to find out more about that um, and could find out virtually nothing on BBC. So I ended up... um, internet searching and found um, uh, the Gatestone Institute and um, got hooked into Ingrid Karlqvist in Sweden, who was giving information about what was going on in the ground in Sweden. That's what I wanted to know. 
I looked at these pictures, and the pictures were supposedly uh, people fleeing war, but they were almost all men. And I began to wonder, what is that going to be doing to Sweden, all of these young men coming into Sweden? Um, well, surely, time, you, surely you remember in 1939 when all of the men in uh, Europe and in the UK uh, fled to Saudi Arabia. Um, no, wait, sorry, that, that didn't happen. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So um, at, at any rate, um, I, I began to find out what was going on in Sweden on the ground there. And um, when I, the very, is, is this going to be too long? Should I shorten it? No, no, okay. no, listen, take, take, it's Western civilization. We don't have to break for commercials. We okay. have some time. Okay, okay, great. Um, the first time I was in Sweden in 1983, I asked a family member who was a policeman, you know, what's the murder and rape like in Sweden? And he said, five, he, he worked in Stockholm, five years ago there was a murder and two years ago there was a rape. So that was 1983. And if we look at Sweden today, Oh, you know, I can hardly count it all on my hand what's going on there. Uh, honor killings, murder, drug gangs, fights, riots, car burnings, no-go zones, health system falling apart, schools falling apart, housing crisis, pension system failing. The elderly dementia patients are, um, I would say, kind of effectively being euthanized. Uh, law and order failing, rampant censorship. So. You know, I kind of started to clue into this, and this was over a period of time, and I began to wonder, I can see what's going on in Sweden. Why are the sweet why is the Swedish government continuing? And then I started looking at what was going on in our country and hooked into a bunch of sites like um, Jihad Watch, Atlas Shrugs, Bare Naked Islam, Religion of Peace, Creeping Sherry. I was looking at essentially um, the immigration of, of Muslims here uh, because a large portion of our immigrants are Muslims. Um, anyway, looking at what was going on in Sweden and across Europe, I mean, we can, we can look at Germany, uh, France, the Netherlands, Belgium, the UK. It just, I could not understand why our government was allowing it to continue. So that started another exploration. So I, I did quite a bit of exploration about uh, Islam and that question. Then I started to look into, um, you know, I, I kept reading about the progressive left. And I thought, well, what the heck is the agenda of the progressive left? So I started looking into that. I I got keyed into the um, policy network in the UK. It's a think tank, progressive left think tank. And um, they had been warning for 15 years back. I read all their immigration and um, integration articles and publications. They'd been warning that unless strong measures were taken, that there was going to be a populist uprising. Um, but there were, there were never strong measures taken. Uh, and of course now, Thank God there is some kind of a, a populist uprising there, or beginning to be. Um, but anyway, um, that led me to um, essentially begin to explore um, the, the left agenda here in this country and um, globalization. And um, I um, started reading David Horowitz, his Black Book series, um, 
uh, read um, various books, um, Post-American Presidency, Red-Green Axis, Refugee Resettlement Here, um, things like that. And then it dawned on me that, um, that, oh my gosh, this is socialism. This is essentially that. So, so then um, I, I've only, um, I discovered your radio show about, um, about two months ago, and it's just been absolutely wonderful to uh, hear some of my own thoughts and discoveries um, that you talk about and, and folks on your show talk about. But then I started reading uh, the UN publications, and that's where things got really scary. Uh, looking at Agenda 2030 essentially is asking for the global government ownership and control of land and utilities and food production and food distribution and healthcare and education and law enforcement, economy, technology, trade, um, the redistribution of wealth by redistributing people, the breakdown of private ownership, breakdown of the family, breakdown of gender and masculinity, breakdown of nation states, breakdown of law of order, and the erasure of history and the white race. So that's what brought me to this call. To me, this seems huge. And um, I'm you know, uh, now that I've been mobilized, now that I've woken up, now that I've taken whatever color pill it is, the one that wakes you up, I can't remember, blue or red, um, I find myself realizing that this is the time for, for my feet to hit the ground running and, and stand up. Uh, so I, I was curious about your thoughts. You, you, of course, can't answer what it is that I'm grappling with, my, you know, my action. But I'm, I'm curious on your take on some of these things that I've talked about and your take on uh, the dire situation that I, I believe we're in right now. I mean, I, I followed most of it. There was a bit of a jump at the end, which I think people will have trouble where you talk about uh, the erasure of the white race. I wonder if you could help people understand at least your perspective uh, on that. Okay. Okay. And, and. You know, you know, maybe I was a, a little bit over speaking, but at one point I ran across the name um, Ricard uh, Kudinov Calgary, uh, who was a European aristocrat who lived in the 1920s. He wrote two books, um, Pan Europa and Practical Idealism. And in Practical Idealism, oh, I, I should say he was an aristocrat. And he is considered by many as the father of the EU. And as a matter of fact, the EU gives out a prize every year called the Charlemagne Prize. Uh, every other year they give that prize out. And um, people in the past who've won it, uh, let's see, uh, uh, Kissinger has won it, uh, Bill Clinton has won it, uh, Winston Churchill has won it, Angela Merkel has won it, lots of folks. So, so anyway, I thought, okay, I want to read those two books this man wrote. If it's the um, origin of the EU, I, I wanted to know what it said. I couldn't find it in English anywhere, which is odd if this is the father of the EU. Um, eventually, and it wasn't available in German either on Amazon at the time. So eventually, I spent hours looking. I eventually found a German PDF of these two books, which I converted to Word, which I plugged into a translator and ended up reading them that way. And 
uh, one of the things he talks about very, very clearly, and he, you know, I, I'll give him credit. There are a lot of uh, really great things he said about, you know, Europe, the European states coming together, and that would reduce the amount of fighting, infighting among Europe, European states, which had been a problem. Um, but essentially, what he said was that his ideal for the future would include, he was talking at this point mainly of Europe, uh, essentially a blending of all of the brown and white races so that there would be one race, and he called that race, uh, I, I can't remember, um, but it, it would be essentially brown, and he, he likened it to uh, the ancient Egyptians, and that this would uh, essentially reduce the uh, average intelligence, which would make that group more easily controlled by uh, th this larger organization of people that he deemed would be spiritually superior to the general masses and could hold the fort down for the general masses until um, they developed enough to, you know, whatever. So that's 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 why I said the genocide of the white race. Um, well, this is uh, so in his book. Um Practical Idealism. This is from 1925? Uh, 1923, I believe, it was published. I'm okay. not going to swear to it. All right. It um, could be 20. He just, so this is from um, Wikipedia. He describes the future of Jews in Europe and of European racial composition with the following words. Quote, The man of the future will be of mixed race. Today's races and classes will gradually disappear owing to the vanishing of space, time, and prejudice. The Eurasian Negroid race of the future, similar in its appearance to the ancient Egyptians, will replace the diversity of peoples with the diversity of individuals. Instead of destroying European Jewry, Europe, against its own will, refined and educated this people into a future leader nation through this artificial selection process. No wonder that this people, that escaped ghetto prison, developed into a spiritual nobility of Europe. Therefore, a gracious providence provided Europe with a new race of nobility by the grace of spirit. This happened at the moment when Europe's feudal aristocracy became dilapidated and thanks to Jewish emancipation. Is that sort of similar to what you're talking about? Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. Okay. Right. Right. And, and I mean, it would also be the eradication of the genetics of the races who came as well, right? If it's all going to be one big blend, then it would basically be the end of, of, of all races, right? Yes. And, and you're really right about that. And, and I was being sort of um, centric. I thought everyone liked the diversity. Yes. <laughs> yes. Right. I mean, if you, if you mix all the colors together, you, you, get, you have no particular colors, right? So. Yes. Yes. Right. Um, how, just before we get into it, uh, how's your daughter doing? Uh, well, she's 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 doing really well. Um, she, you know, I, I've tried to talk with her a little bit about some of these things, and you know, I'm kind of kicking myself a bit. I we we didn't have money for uh, private education of any sort, so the best I could do for them, uh, she participated in the International Baccalaureate program in high school. Uh, unbeknownst to me at the time, the curriculum was really a curriculum that is sort of a global curriculum that supports, a, you know, very, very many of these ideas that are being espoused in the Agenda 2030. And then she went on to do a master's degree.
in um, colonial literature. So looking at uh, writings of people who were colonized in Africa and the Middle East. So, um, you know, I, I hinted that I might be voting for Trump and, you know, all hell broke loose. So, you know, that's that's kind of personal, but it, it, it's um, she it she has a lot of this um, uh, the ideals I think without any clue what it's going to mean as far as as how this works out for her and of course I'm a mom and I'm reading that that Islam and ISIS have said they're going to be using uh, chemical weapons in London and of course that's a bit scary so but she's fine she's good she's healthy she's working she's got a great relationship she has friends so she's good long answer okay all right Fr friends won't help her against chemical attacks but uh, I know what you mean yeah. I know what you mean it's good that she has friends all right so I'll, I'll give you my thoughts okay and then um, you can let me know what you think of my thoughts. The disparity between the West and other... Sorry, let me, let me start this again. The disparity between high IQ and lower IQ countries, civilizations, cultures, whatever you want to call them, because you can't just say the West, you know, I mean, Japan, other than its massive debt, is, you know, fairly uh, civilized and is going through that high IQ hollowing out of the demographics, right? As the young people just don't want to uh, have kids and all of that. Uh, China uh, is becoming more civilized and in some ways is freer than certain areas uh, in the um, uh, in, in the West, right? This book that you were talking about, there was a European publisher who wanted to publish a copy and the police descended and grabbed the only copy they had and, you know, all that. So not particularly free. So for... Since the cultures first began colliding into each other a couple of hundred years ago, there has been this immense frustration, this, this staggering frustration. Why is it not possible to transfer Western culture to other cultures, right? I mean, why? The goal of a lot of colonialism from the Western powers. It was called the white man's burden, which is like, wow, we, we happen to come across all of these wonderful things or discover all of these wonderful things or inherit all these wonderful ideas, you know, free market, science, separation of church and state and, and private property and the rule of law and common law. All the, we have this treasure. And the goal, it was not perfectly executed, of course, but the goal was to go out and share the goodies with the rest of the world, to, to go to India, to, to go to Africa, to go to other places, China, and to share these goodies with the rest of the world. And there was Christianity involved in the motivation for that transfer, but there was also benevolence, and there was, of course, some rapacious and predatory aspects. But generally, where the European, well, where, they, where the British powers went, and it's the only one I've studied really in great detail, where the British powers went, there was an improvement in the local circumstances. So, so there's this idea that we were like rich children, just happened to inherit a whole bunch of money. There's poor people around. Let's just go and, you know, help, help these poor people, right? That the only difference 
between the rich cultures and the poor cultures is the money, right? It's like this old saying or, or exchange between F. Scott Fitzgerald and uh, Ernest Hemingway. Um, I think, I can't remember who said what to who, but one of them said to the other, the rich aren't like you and me. And the other one said, well, yeah, they have more money. <laughs> that is such a foundational question. What is the difference, say, between sub-Saharan Africa and um, Western Europe? And is it possible to transfer all of the good stuff from Western Europe to sub-Saharan Africa? And for the past few hundred years, and in particular over the past 60 years or 70 years, there has this been this massive effort to take the goods of the West and give them to the world, to hand them over, to help set up the structure, to help, you know, massive transfers of intellectual property, massive transfers of, of capital and, and investment and technology and, and patents and medicines and you name it. <clears throat> you back up the truck of Western glory, pour it into the gaping mouths of the third world. Mm-hmm. And what's happened? How has this all gone? Trillions and trillions of dollars poured into the third world. For what? And this, I mean, it hasn't really solved the problem at all. Now, there is improvement. And the improvement is, in particular, I'm thinking about China and, and India, right? You've got 50,000 people a month coming into the middle class. So there have been some improvements. But the problem is, human biodiversity remains, I think, the most significant barrier and danger, it, a lack of recognition, right? The fact that there is human biodiversity at the moment, and, and by this I mean that not all ethnicities have the same levels of what is traditionally measured in the West as IQ, which is fairly predictive of success individually and as a culture. And it doesn't, it doesn't transfer in the way that we want. Now, whether the IQ differences are genetic or environmental, at this point doesn't hugely matter. Because there's nothing that we can think of doing that we haven't already tried. So... There is this, the West has been unable to replicate itself in other cultures, in other countries, in other continents. And the question is, why? Now, there used to be an answer, which, is, which was fairly well understood, which is that, well, you know, the races are different, right? There's some are bigger, some are stronger, some are faster, some are smarter. And, of course, you would expect separated by you know, 50 to 150,000 years of evolution in, in wildly disparate environments that there would then be a difference, a, a, a branching, a difference in specialization. This used to be accepted and understood. And then the left came along and said, now it's all environmental. That number one, they said, it's all environmental. Uh, we're a blank slate and we are molded and shaped by our economic environment. That's it. Mm -hmm. And they also said that the rich are rich because they steal from the poor. They exploit the poor. Right. The capitalist with his big fat belly and his monocle and his gold watch and his cigar and his top hat. 
is stealing from the workers. He has a million dollars because a million workers each have one dollar less. Now, when you combine the dominance of the left intellectually, and this really has been going on for about 150 years. I mean, it's accelerated, obviously. It's reaching its fruition at the moment, which is why these culture wars are erupting so ferociously. But the left, I mean, there's kind of an iron rule of organization. All organizations drift to the left incessantly. And sometimes it feels irrevocably. And I think this is driven by the state, which is one of the reasons why I have my beliefs about it. But this idea that everything's environmental and that the rich are only rich because they've stolen from the poor, when you look at the world through that lens, then you look at the West as evil and predatory and exploitive and and that sub-Saharan Africa would be exactly like Denmark, except that the Westerners came and stole all the resources, right? just parachuted in, grabbed everything, and took it all back to Europe. And that's why sub-Saharan Africa is so poor. And that's why Europe is so rich, they stole it all. Now, of course, the fact that sub-Saharan Africa wasn't exactly swimming in wealth before the Europeans came along, and the fact that the life expectancy has increased, the population has increased, the GDP, while under European rule, increased all the stuff I've talked about uh, many times before, the fact that new technologies and new wealth and new investment, new opportunities, railroads, roads, medicine, cars, you name it, was all brought there, doesn't matter. And this frustration, oh God, it's, it's, it's like we're drowning in this delusion, this frustration. And I understand it's very painful. Human biodiversity is one of the most painful, jagged little pills that I've ever had to swallow and it is um the the, the before and after that is night and day yeah Mm -hmm. and so this incredible frustration looking at the wealth of the west looking at the poverty of the third world and saying they stole it from us they owe it back to us those bastards right like there are people who genuinely believe that the wealth of america was built on slavery i mean built on slavery Madness. I, I understand where it's coming from because you look at the black community in America and you see the you know, high crime rates and the low income and low savings and so on. And then you look at the whites or the, the East Asians and say, well, they're much richer, much because they stole from us. That's what happened. We were ripped off. The white devils came in, pillaged our resources, pillaged our gold, pillaged our people, pillaged our land, stole from us. And this creates an enormous amount of rage and frustration and anger and hatred towards the Europeans, towards the Western, towards the whites. It's like Iago just whispering in people's ears saying, well, you're poor because those pale devils over there are rich. They stole from you. Now, are you just going to sit there and take it or are you going to go and get it And that is, I believe, where things stand at the moment. That Europeans are thieves, predators, 
devils, genocidal, murderous, pale-necked deep in blood. And they owe the world redistribution of wealth, redistribution of wealth. Now, the phrase redistribution of wealth is one of these very sinister phrases because, of course, it implies that the wealth was somehow distributed to, to begin with. No, the wealth was created. The wealth was earned uh, through people operating in a free market which respected property rights. And redistributed, well, you inherited it, we're just going to carve it off. And no, it was created. I mean, if we talk about the redistribution of sexual access, we would understand we'd be talking about institutionalized rape. Uh, because, yes. you know, vaginas weren't distributed, like handed yeah. out like clamshells at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, you got some extra. <laughs> Share it around, right? So, if, as the leftists believe, it's all environmental, then, of course, when you take people from the third world and put them in the first world, their children will grow up just like first worlders, right? If, if, if you take people from the Middle East and you take them to Sweden, then their children will grow up in Sweden and will be just like the Swedes, and, the native Swedes. And as that, a, that's the, yeah, go ahead. As a matter of fact, they're finding that second and third generation immigrants are actually more radicalized, more angry, more violent than their parents and grandparents ever were. The, of, of the immigrant population sure. across Europe. And this is, this is exactly what you would expect from human biodiversity, which is that the smartest immigrants will come across to the West, uh, but then their children, if there are genetic bases to disparities in intelligence, the smartest will come to the West. Let's say that the top 1% of, of Somalians will come to the West, but then their children will be a regression to the mean and will be much more like the general population of Somalia than the outliers, the exceptions to the average who came across to the West. And we, I've talked about this before. You've got some extraordinarily tall Chinese guys who come over and play basketball. Now, their children are taller than average, but they're not as tall as their parents. And there's a regression to the mean. This is sort of natural and uh, helps uh, very intelligent parents understand that their kids may not be exactly like them, <laughs> all this kind of stuff, right? And We've seen this in general, right? The, the, um, we've had Dr. Jason Richwine on the show a number of times. He's done significant analyses of multi-generational patterns within the Hispanic community that comes into America, of course. And he's found that there is a regression to the mean, that the parents don't do as well, the kids do better, but the kids' kids do worse, right? The parents don't do as well because they're new, less educated, language barriers and so on. Their kids do better because they have all those advantages, but then there's a regression to the mean in the third generation, which then uh, it, it declines. And uh, all of this is god-awfully true. It's horribly true. I mean, I'll tell you this, I would tell you this, there is nothing I would rather be wrong about than human biodiversity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, every time a study comes up, I'm like, please, Jesus, can, you, can a brother get an equalization? Can, can, can a brother get a not regression to the mean? Right? Yeah. Well, it's welfare usage, right? First yes. generation uses some welfare. Second generation uses less. Third generation uses more. Regression to the mean. I would love to be wrong about all of this. 
As would I. Because if we're wrong, if I'm wrong about this, fantastic. I mean, then then things can go relatively nicely. If I'm not wrong about this, and so far the evidence is accumulating to the point where it seems like it's starting to doubt gravity to think about it. But it means that diversity plus proximity equals war. Yes. Yes. This and is this is what I mean. Sorry, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, there's, there's another point, too, and this is true of so many people that I know in Europe. So many people have a really good heart, and they really want to help. And they really believe that bringing these folks in is the best way to help them. And um, they're sort of their own worst enemy that way. Uh, we are. Um, I've said for years and years, I, I gladly, and I do share my wealth with people who are less fortunate. But um, what it's looking like now in Europe is that the life of, of law and order and, um, uh, you know, values and safety and, and education and those kinds of things are, are getting crushed in this clash of yes, civilization. But this is not the fault of the immigrants. And fundamentally, it's not even the fault of the governments. The governments are going to do what governments are going to do. They're going to try and win brownie points and virtue signal, and they're going to avoid negative attention from the press because that's what politicians are pathologically hypersensitive to negative opinions from people they fear. They don't fear white people, right? I mean, they fear journalists. They fear, so, but here's, here's the thing. The West has only appeared to be strong. It has only had the illusion of strength because the West has not been the West for 150 years. What we're seeing now, it's like, it's like this giant mansion. It's like you only see it from the outside. It looks strong. It's been there for hundreds or thousands of months. But inside, the termites have been working away and the termites have been chewing and the termites have been undoing and breaking down all the load-bearing walls. And then what happens is somebody gets drunk falls against the wall, and the whole thing falls down, and we say, it's the drunk guy's fault. No. No, it's the lack of maintenance. It's the fact that nobody dealt with the termites yep. for 150 years. Yep. That's the problem. Not, it's not what's happening now. It's what has been happening before. This is the end result. You know, it's when you crack a whip, right? It's that last little at the end that makes the sound. Mm -hmm. Right, but it's the whole arm, it's the whole whip, and then you get this one little thing at the end, and this whip. This what we're seeing now is the crack, but the thing's been in motion for 150 years or more, since the governments took over education and currency. It has not been the West. It has been the fall of Rome. It has not been the the West. Is dead already. This is the twitching of the posthumous corpse. Right, so so we 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 can't say well the West is failing. This is what happened. Well, we gave our children to the government to be educated, and of course, then the government teaches all the children how wonderful the government is, and how amazing redistribution is, and how taxation is essential, and and then you raise all of these people who look not to themselves or to freedom or to their community for solutions. They look to the state. Ah, the big giant glorious Gabriel. 
bloody tunicked state is going to solve all our problems. It's going to control the currency. It's going to control the children. It's going to control the environment. It's going to regulate. It's going to manage the roads. It's going to manage the plumbing. It's going to manage the water. It's going to manage. Oh, and as Lenin said, once you get the government to take over health care. Uh, yeah. Well, once once the government has health care, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? But it's really, it's the control of the currency that is the fundamental reality. If the government didn't control the currency, then uh, there would be the, the successive drag on the ever-ascending helium balloon of government power. There would be this drag of mathematical reality pulling it back down to the ground. But that, because the government can print its own money and borrow at infinitum and, and set up unfunded liabilities deep into the future, that there's been no check on the power of the state. So it was 150 years ago or so that government education came in for the most part. It was a little over 100 years ago that uh, central banking, government control of the fiat currency came in. The West was dead since then. There was no more free market. You know, the socialists say they want to control the means of production and we think it's factories. No, 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 no. It's not factories. It's not capital equipment. It's not machinery. Control over the means of production is controlling the money. The currency is the means of production. Once you socialize the money, once you turn the money into a central planning, communistic, fiat monopoly, toilet paper factory, once the government controls the money, the culture, the civilization, the liberties, the freedoms, are already dead. For the last 150 years, there has been but three words to describe the West. Dead man walking. So why do we have a migrant crisis? Because people surrendered the autonomy of their states to the central planners in Brussels. That's only one part of it. But the fundamental reason we have a migrant crisis is because of warfare and welfare. The warfare welfare state has produced the migrant crisis, number one, of course, by the endless wars in the Middle East, destroying and destabilizing the countries. And boy, boy, boy you think we've, we've got a problem <laughs> with exploding uh, migrants. H how about the Middle East, which has drones and exploding bombs and the destruction of their healthcare system and the destruction of sanitary systems in, in a very hot climate? And good God. I know. Good God. Yeah. Right. I mean, yes. what is being done unto the West is very little compared to what has been done unto the East. Oh, no, somebody drove a truck down. Terrible. Terrible. But at least they're not bunker busters falling from 20,000 feet up in the air. So the warfare state destabilized the Middle East, destroyed the cultures, destroyed the countries. And the welfare state then created a giant vacuum of free stuff, which pulled all of the people from the destabilized countries into the West. You can, how can you blame them? In, in, in Iran, you make one-tenth to one-twentieth a month than you can get for free in Germany, in, in the welfare state. So the warfare state destroys the countries and the welfare state brings in the people, the young men. And I understand, yes, of course, there's something in uh, Islamic teachings around, you know, it's, it's, it's a very virtuous act to go to new countries and, and attempt to move the needle towards Islam, and I get all of that. Mm -hmm. But that's been the case in Islam for a long time. Still never worked in Europe. So once Europe, once the West, gave up our children, 
to the government and gave up our currency to central bankers. Everything that has followed is inevitable. They can afford these endless wars because they can print the money. They can afford to have these endless wars and a welfare state because they print the money. And until we can gain control back of the money, the lifeblood, money is civilization. Money is what it is to have a culture. Private money is the only way a culture can survive because it's the only way it can push back viscerally against being lied to. Because people like, like you, like me, before we woke up, mm-hmm. we, we sought our everyday pleasures and we kind of figured that we were in this general inertia of lackadaisical improvement that was going to go from here to eternity. Exactly. Yep. And then when we find out about the demographic winter, uh, when we find about the you know Marxist penetrations of feminism, when we find out about fiat currency, find out about the warfare welfare state, find out about the rampant vote buying, colloquially referred to as democracy, we begin to wake up. Now we you do that because you have a daughter who you believe may be in harm's way. I do that for my own particular reasons and purposes. But the reality is, most people won't wake up until. Uh, disaster is uh, is upon them. And uh, it's like this old far side cartoon I've talked about before. One caveman is a big giant wall of ice, like three feet from a cave. And one caveman looks to another and says, say, thank, is that wall of ice look closer to you today? <laughs> I mean, they're still they the cave, three feet from the cave. And so when are people going to um, wake up? Well, um, they're going to wake up when the government runs out of money. And when the government runs out of money, uh, there will be uh, no funds with which to pay the welfare state. And when there are no funds with which to pay the welfare state, there will be riots. And when there are riots, the government will have a choice. The government will either crack down on those riots and attempt to restore significant order and there won't be any more of these 55 no-go zones in Sweden or anything like that, which is basically, it's not Europe anymore. It's not, it's it's not Europe. Not. There are massive areas in Europe. They're not Europe anymore. No, it's true. It's I mean, the, the police don't go there. There's, there's no control. There's no, I mean, it's Sharia law. I mean, they're not, it's not Europe anymore. It's not Europe. And when... They run out of money. They will end up paying those they consider the most dangerous. Like if you, if you have a thousand dollars left, and you owe a thousand dollars to a nice guy, and you owe a thousand dollars to the mafia, who are you going to pay? Yeah, the mafia naturally. Right, right. So the most peaceful in society are going to get the services cut the most and the groups that the government is most afraid of uh, are going to get paid the most and this is going to, at some point, provoke spillover tensions. Of course, it is my hope and my goal that this stuff can be resolved peacefully uh, as times go, times goes by and um, the European governments, they're doing the insane things that, that governments do. It's perfectly sane in the pursuit of immediate the immediate drug called power. So uh, they consider um, not the migrant crisis to be the problem, but any questions or concerns about the migrant crisis 
That's the problem. That's what needs to be attacked. That's what needs to be policed. That what's need, that's uh, what needs to be uh, thrown. Yeah, th- those are the people who need to be thrown in jail, right? And they know that because if they try to go and enforce Swedish law or German law in these no-go zones, what's going to happen? Well, it's going to be little Mogadishu all over again, in my humble opinion. Mm-hmm. So they don't want to do that because that's, then, then you see there are pictures in the newspaper of people not doing well. And there'll be white policemen and there'll be non-white people on the receiving end of police power and it'll be splashed all over the newspapers. Well, and, and racist and Islamophobic and I don't know, whatever other kind of stuff could, can, can be thrown. And, and then everybody will be shocked and appalled and horrified and oh, right. Yep, it, it just happened over um, this New Year's in Germany. I forget which city it was, but uh, maybe Berlin. Uh, the police were trying to keep order, and essentially they were profiling. That is, they were they were not letting certain folks in who were known to be dangerous, who were known to have criminal records, and that sort of thing. And there was a huge backlash, huge backlash about... Um, about the racial profiling and the racism and Islamophobia, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know if you've read about that. Oh, yeah, no, no. And, and um, where was it? Uh, someplace in Europe, a thousand cars were set fire to you. But it's just economic warfare. So why are they setting fire to cars? Well, uh, because it harms the economy of the host nation. And, you know, I, from, from the Middle Eastern perspective, I dare say from the Muslim perspective, if somebody said to me, well, you can escape this poor country with, you know, either being bombed or armed or, you know, even if it's not being bombed, there's always that threat. And you can go to the country that has been bombing your fellow Muslims and you can then sit on its welfare and help to destroy its economy because when its economy is destroyed, there won't be any more bombings in the Middle East. Hmm. I can really, really understand that oh, perspective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you got to go to, it would be the most boring Star Wars movie ever, but if the Death Star had big giant welfare programs and, and when they run out of money, they couldn't fire their giant lasers and blow up planets. Yeah, a lot of Luke Skywalkers would be like Luke, Luke couch sitters. Luke, hey, let's get a free MacBook Air and, you know, surf, uh, surf websites. Uh, it would, they would go over and they would drain the resources off the Death Star so that the Death Star would stop its deadly march through various uh, star systems. So... I can, you know, I can perfectly understand, but it's, it's, it's the West, we, we, we betrayed our own values. We betrayed everything that made the West, the West. And we've done it over the last 150 years. And we have put sentimentality ahead of reality. We've put delusion ahead of truth. We've put government power ahead of cooperation. We have surrendered more and more Mm -hmm. of our lives to the power and coercion of the state. We have more and more regulations. We have an insane tax code. We have an absolutely unnavigatable legal system. We have decided to sell off the futures of our young in order to buy peace in the here and now. Because it only takes one generation of the welfare state for any solution to the welfare state to be rife with violence. Because once you get that second generation growing up in the welfare state, if you start to reduce the welfare state, they're going to riot. They're going to burn things down. They're going to be, it's going to be blood in the streets. Yep. And uh, politicians, what, what they want is, is five more minutes 
of not being called racist. They want five more minutes of pretend peace. That's all they want. And it is the betrayal of those who came before us that has handed us this corpse that we are now trying to shock back into life. But no, the West has betrayed its values, all the values that made it great. And yes, I will include Christianity in that in many ways. So the West has betrayed its values for many generations. And uh, now a lot of people people are complaining that things don't seem to be going well. Well, um, it's not one cigarette that kills you. It's 30 years. Yep, I, I, I'm, I'm going to have to say that I agree with you on that. Um, and, you know, your, your image of the whip, and it's the very tip of the whip that makes the sound and is the part that cracks and, and uh, injures the body, uh, that, that actually makes, uh, makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, I, I think a lot about Sweden. I actually know a little bit more about Sweden than I do about my own country here. And uh, they've had this welfare state now for, for quite a number of decades. And although in um, my husband's grandparents' time, they, they were all farmers and they traded food and they traded fish and they traded hand handwork and they... Um, they they cooperated with one another so they were actually they did have um, a real solid base of a society at that time um, well I'm sorry to interrupt but um, here's the challenge first of all the welfare state is much better done in, in private charity because private charity has standards and private charity can differentiate between people who've just had bad luck versus people who are just stupid and doing bad things, right? So somebody who gets ill unexpectedly and they didn't just didn't happen to be covered for for some in their health insurance. Okay, help those people absolutely, right? But some guy who takes his paycheck and goes and blows it, uh, betting on the ponies and <laughs> getting drunk. Uh, you, you don't want to subsidize that, right? So this question of the welfare state is. For one thing, privately, you need to do it because you don't want to subsidize bad behavior, but you do want to help people who genuinely need it. And only private charities can do that. But that's not even, to me, the most important aspect. Even if you have the governments running the uh, welfare state, the problem is that the welfare state is very appealing to people, I would guess, IQ 85 and below. Because IQ 85 and below, you're more likely to make more money off the welfare state, then you are going to get a job. And, and, if you're IQ 85 or below, the jobs you're going to get, they're not going to be great. You're not going to be designing a lot of skyscrapers, and you're not going to be running a lot of reality shows or anything. You're just not going to get great jobs with that level uh, of intelligence. So, if you have a high IQ population, then there are very few people who fall into that category of IQ 85 or below. And that means that the welfare state, while negative and a kind of slow dysgenic drag on society, is not particularly quickly catastrophic. But if you have a population 
that is coming in that is and again i'm just iq 85 or some arbitrary thing could be higher could be lower whatever it's just we need a number but when you have a bunch of people coming in who fall at or below that then you have a problem yeah mm-hmm. right because they're going to come in and sit on welfare and we can see this so i've got the truth about immigration and the welfare mm-hmm. uh, use mm-hmm. by europeans is vastly below the welfare use by hispanics and and so on and, and blacks right so this is the problem that, that the people who are less intelligent need more immediate cues and have a tougher time saying to themselves, well, you know, I can go on welfare now, but I'm going to be kind of sitting at the same income in 10 or 20 years. And what if the welfare state runs out of money? And what if I get bored and so on? Well, you know, you and I would probably get very bored sitting around with nothing to do all day. But if you're IQ 85 or lower, it's a pretty good time. Not a lot of complaints, not a lot of people saying, I can't stand welfare. It's too boring. I've got, I'd rather have any kind of job than that, right? And so this is part of the human biodiversity again. So Japan has a welfare state, right? But they don't have a lot of people on the welfare state because the average IQ in Japan is well north of 100. But if they brought a bunch of people in like uh, Australian aboriginals with what IQ 67, how many of the aboriginals would end up working at Mitsubishi or Sony or whatever it is as, as product engineers or designers? Well, virtually none. And... Very quickly, they would have a lot of kids, right? Because you have the welfare, right? More kids, more welfare. They have a lot of kids. And so the welfare state, although immoral and bad and wrong, is relatively not as disastrous in a high IQ population. But here's, I mean, this is the great horror and and, and tragedy of uh, what's going on in the West at the moment, which is this, uh, that uh, at a time... When automation is stripping opportunities out from under the noses of lower IQ people, yeah. the West is massively importing low IQ populations of all the times. <laughs> you know, if it was some big giant agricultural society, okay, it would sort of delay automation. It would delay, you know, combine harvesters and stuff. But at least, but, I mean, what, what, what's going to happen? I mean, in... Um, in Japan, insurance underwriters are being replaced by robots. It's not just menial labor anymore. Even white-collar jobs are falling to automation. At a time when society has enough of a challenge figuring out with increasing automation, which is being accelerated by all the barriers to hiring people effectively and efficiently and all the ways in which governments raise artificially raise the price of labor and all that. At a time when we desperately need fewer lower IQ people in an increasingly automated society, what are governments doing? Come on in. We have no jobs for you now, but we'll have even fewer jobs for you next year. Yeah, and, and that's, that's very true. Um, in Sweden, I always come back to Sweden, a country that I've, I've loved very, very much in my life. Um, but there are no jobs for these people. There was a riot this past week in Sweden at one of the asylum centers. Folks saying, number one, we're mad because we didn't get houses and we're, we're in these apartments. But number two, we don't have jobs. And without jobs and a house, we can't get girls. And without jobs and a house and girls, what's life worth living? Um, so they burned down the <laughs> asylum house and, uh, you know, kept kept the um, uh, 
the folks working there hostage and you know it's a big mess well anytime you have a large group of unmarried young men in your society you have trouble absolutely it's, you have trouble yeah and uh, this has been very very clear all throughout history you you could not design a system more perfectly calibrated to destabilize society. I know. It's almost funny, except it's tragic. But you're right. It, it, couldn't, it couldn't have been planned better for destruction and decimation of society if we had tried on purpose to do it. Well, and a lot of it needs to be laid at the, the blame of it. Need, a lot of it needs to be laid at the feet of women. Women are consistently voting for larger and larger government. Women consistently, in general, vote for open borders. If you look at the breakdown of votes for nationalistic or sovereign movements in Europe, um, significantly more men than women vote for sovereignty and control over immigration, and significantly more women than men vote for uh, open borders and uh, uh, bigger and, and more government and, and open immigration and all that. I, I know. I I have, you know, all of my... My liberal friends who know, some, some I haven't told because I'm getting tired of losing friends, but all of my friends who know I voted for Trump uh, aren't my friends anymore. They don't want to have anything to do with me. Um, like you're in league with the devil, right? I'm in league with the devil. I'm a racist. I'm, I'm going to be joining the stormtroopers uh, coming to get them in the night. And, you know, and these those, are mostly uh, female friends? Yes, all the female friends, yes. And... Um, they all they all believe in open borders and uh, welfare, and the more immigrants we can take in, the better, and et cetera, et cetera. Exactly what you just said. So I, I find myself. Why? Why? Why do they? Why? 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 You know, I I have to say that I was there myself a few years ago. I I wasn't awake enough to see what was really going on. And it's very easy to, to move into that space where you just want to help people, you know? Well, sure. But, I mean, why, why does helping people mean moving them to your country? I know. I mean, I, why, why doesn't helping people mean helping them relocate in the, the vast expanse of Saudi Arabia or any of the other Muslim countries where I think they'd be much more at home and wouldn't be so frustrated? I mean, that there are women there, apparently, who can marry them. Yes. And, and in fact, we can help. I think the, the, uh, with the UN figures and things, we can help 12 people in place for every one that we move to the West. So it's actually more helpful to mm -hmm. help, help them in place than to move them um, to the West. And, but, you know, what can I say, Stefana? These are smart women. You know, they, they're college educated. Most of them have master's degrees. Um... Well, that's why. I mean, they, they've just been exposed to so much more lefty propaganda, right? Yeah, um, that, that could very well be. And, you know, I feel for my daughter. She's been exposed to a lot of this propaganda. Um, I got to tell you, I mean, it's, I, I think I can speak for more than a few men in this area. As a white male, for many decades, being told 
that I'm sexist, misogynistic, patriarchal, privileged, and that I need to have more respect for, uh, for women. I need to treat women better and all of that. And having been at the receiving end of massive shrapnel-filled cannonfuls of scorn and hostility from certain segments within the female community for being unenlightened and being a male chauvinist pig and this, that, and the other. Mm-hmm. I got to tell you, this is not so much for you, but for the ladies out there, I got to tell you, it's a little frustrating seeing women welcome after scorning white men for so long, seeing women welcome with, with open arms, a truly medieval doctrine with regards to women's rights. Yeah, I know. I know. It's unfathomable. I mean, that, I don't, I don't understand it. I don't either. I don't understand. Like, I cannot, I cannot fathom it. Seeing the left, of course, oh, gay rights, gay rights, gay rights, fantastic. But then let's bring in a lot of people from Saudi Arabia. Are you kidding me? Uh, <laughs> like, what? Where they hang <laughs> gays, literally. No, it's, it's literally like the, the, the hottest woman in town, you know, just won't date you because she heard you may have once said something harsh to a woman. It's not true, but let's say she heard that she won't date you because you've got to treat women with respect. And you know who she ends up marrying? The guy who beats her up. Although I, that, that I don't understand it. I, I, I fundamentally, I can't. I can't, I, I can't fathom it. And, 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 you know, I don't know <laughs> if you can either, but, ah. Well, on, on the personal scale, I, I would say it might be family of origin issues. So a, a woman who chooses somebody who, who beats her up, I would say there are issues from her family early on that she's, she's not dealt with. But on the larger cultural scale is where it's unfathomable to me, um, I, I don't understand why the folks who say they're for equal rights for women and gays and uh, minorities and Jews and Christians and all of that are bringing in people who trample on those very rights. It, yeah, it, why, why isn't all criticism of white men pushed back against as patriarchy phobia? Yes. <laughs> don't don't be such a patriarchy phobe. <laughs> don't be such a masculine phobe. We should we should don't point- be such a penis phobe. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I, I could do that for about twenty minutes. So let's let's keep keep okay, moving okay. as best yes. we can. Yes. But why? I mean, why why is it that uh, if there are criticisms of you know some pretty repressive aspects of us, uh, oh that phobic, but but why is it that when white males are criticized, nobody pushes back and like that's all true. It's all valid. I mean. Women couldn't try, if they want, like a sat down and draw out one of these Kologi plans, they, they couldn't sit down and, and, and design a plan that would make men dislike them more than this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because at some point, it, it may well happen that women don't like the new things that are going on. Oh, oh, oh it's definitely... <laughs> There's, there's and then who, who are they going to run to? Yeah. Save us, men! Yeah. Yeah. 
And I got to tell you, <laughs> I mean, reading the comments, there are a lot of men who are like, nope, <laughs> no thank you. Because you had family courts, eviscerators, you divorced our dads, you took them for everything that they had, you're sitting pretty on alimony and child support, and you, you badmouth men all the time, and you refused to stand up for us, and we got thrown in jail more, and we got broken up more, and bad things happened to us, and you let everybody insult all the men in your life. Why the hell would we fight for you? Yeah, yeah. And, and now, I think I saw your tweet today, but I saw the article um, before I saw your tweet about that class in Wisconsin for young men in college, essentially uh, brainwashing them about how awful their masculinity is. I think it was Wisconsin. Right. So if, just... if patriarchy is bad, why is criticizing patriarchy in Islam called Islamophobia? Because I, I think it's fairly safe that there, there might just be a shade or two more patriarchy in uh, Islam than there would be in the <laughs> contemporaneous West. Just, you know, I'm no expert, but just going from what I've read and heard, just a little, maybe just a coat or two more of paint of, of the patriarchy. Yeah. So, uh, but we, we all know. I mean, so I don't. The, the betrayal of of the women the, that is the downfall of the West fundamentally. M men get it, and why do men get it? Because if there's going to be conflict, it's the men who are going to be drafted, right? So women are like, oh, you yeah, know, we'll just get pregnant, <laughs> whatever, right? I mean, so this this betrayal of the West uh, by women, in in particular, uh, I think is. I mean, women out. It's still a democracy. Women live longer. They outvote men. They vote more reliably, and they vote more towards the left. They vote more for open borders and bigger government. What can men do? Yeah. Can't can't. Right. I mean, I've had these messages from people in Europe saying, "Yo, we would love to fight, but we can't fight everyone." We can't find the academics, we can't fight the government, we can't fight the women, we can't fight the media, we can't, like, at least the people who went off to World War II, they had the support of everyone at home. Oh, they did. Oh, gosh, I remember. Not that I was alive then, but what I've read about it, they did. Um, right. They did. Yeah, so this just of those, well, you know, trending. Universities work to purge male students of their toxic masculinity. I wonder why that's a picture of a white guy. Why isn't that a picture of an imam? Because, you know, toxic masculinity, I, I wonder why they're not uh, campuses hosting training sessions, group meetings, lectures, and other programs to effectively cleanse what many campus leaders and left-leaning scholars contend is an unhealthy masculinity in young men today. Now, I don't understand that at all. Because women have been in charge of raising men for the past two generations at least. So how could there be toxic masculinity left when single moms and daycare teachers and primary school teachers, women. Women have been raising men for two generations. If men are so toxic, I don't understand. See, if men are still toxic after women have been raising them for two generations, guess what, ladies? Masculinity is not environmental and can't be fixed. But if it is environmental, then men are toxic because they've been raised by women. In which case, more nagging probably isn't going to help the problem. Oh, and I also wonder, <laughs> if men are so toxic, gosh, you know, if men are so toxic, I I'm sure that women are going to boycott calling the police when they get in trouble. Because, you know, you can't call a policeman because he's a man. He's so toxic. It's terrible. 
Yeah. Or a fireman. Yeah, right. Or or an aid worker. Yeah. First what aid. women need yeah. to do is boycott stuff made by men. Just boycott it all. Running water, roofs, um, plumbing, <laughs> cars. Just boycott it all. It's so it's 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 so toxic. It's got all this testosterone all over it. You could get poisoned. Just stay away from everything that men have produced. Just go. Go wherever it is. You can find something not invented or maintained or built by a man and be free of all this toxic masculinity that, I don't know, has bears not chew your boobs off on a regular basis because you're in the woods. <sighs> I mean, I, I, I get you don't need thanks every morning. Oh, man, thank you for building the civilization that keeps us safe. Just maybe not taking this giant menstrual dump on men on a regular basis. That's all I'm asking for, just a little bit of a cessation of that. Or, good Lord, most taxes are paid by men. You better boycott government money because that's also tainted <laughs> yeah. with masculine money. The money's got testosterone on it. You're going to get cuties. No welfare, no child support. And child support and alimony payments, the laws were passed by men. It's generally enforced by men. The men are arrested by other men. It's just a big giant cog in toxic masculinity. You've got to boycott not only the stuff that's built and maintained by men, but government money, the welfare state, alimony, child support, all masculine, all patriarchally enforced. Boycott it all. <laughs> yeah, I'll be waiting for that to happen. Yeah, it's a, it's a really weird dynamic. It, it, it's a very, very difficult unfathomable dynamic actually it is chilling how easily most women can be turned against the men in their society mm -hmm. like whatever happens in society in the future this can't be unseen this can't be unpilled mm -hmm. there's no going back and, and this, because there's the internet, because there's the manosphere, because there's men's rights movements and, and so on, this knowledge is spreading in a way that it never spread before. Yeah. That women are just turning, again, turning against white men and attacking and, and undermining and siding with the enemies and inviting in the enemies. And, and uh, <sighs> yeah. this can't be unseen, whatever happens in the future. And that the cultures and societies... I'm sorry, what that, was that? I missed it. What? Well, and, and the cultures and societies that, that treat women like crap are winning. Mm -hmm. That can't be unseen either. Hmm. So, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen, but uh, whatever is going to happen, I think men are going to have a very tough time in the future saying to women, yeah, let's give you a lot of political power because you did a great job with it last time. Yeah, you know, it's it's the funniest thing. I in my earlier years, of course, feminism was something very different many, many years ago than than it is today. So I'm 60. So uh you know, it was it was very different way back way back yonder. But Well, and sorry, no, no, you were sorry. I thought you'd finish your thought. Please go on. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I was going to go on with that, but no, you go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that um, in, in, a, in a free society, the 
general social trends would be determined by you know, in, by uh, ambition, uh, by resource acquisition and resource management of wealth and, and so on and all of that. In, in a society, men would still have, I think, a little bit more influence um, because there would be, uh, uh, men would accumulate more wealth because men would be out there gathering resources for the women who were having children, you know, as in ye olden days. So I think men would have a little bit more influence uh, and I think it would be proportional uh, to the danger. But this sort of one for one thing where women have power without responsibility, uh, that that I, I don't know that that's going to be replicated in the future. E- either way, that's not going to last. I mean, either some other ideology takes over and women's right. rights are out the window anyway, or... Um, you know, after a sort of bitter struggle, the the uh, the people who reshape things in the future are going to have learned some kind of lesson. But uh, and I, I don't blame women for this at all. I mean, it's natural. I mean, men men have had sort of massive consequences in political action for tens of thousands of years. You know, you you get the wrong leader, he takes you to war, and you die like a dog in the ditch. You know, but but women have had political power for uh, really less than a century. Uh, and they've used that political power to shield themselves in general from consequences. Oh, did you choose the wrong man? Oh, well, that's okay. You can divorce him and we'll just give you welfare or we'll get him to pay you alimony and child support and so on. Oh, you're dissatisfied in your marriage. You're going, oh, did you get pregnant out of wedlock and the guys run off? That's fine. We'll take, right? So women have generally used the state and I'm generalizing here enormously, but women have generally used the state to escape consequences when they can. And and that is perfectly natural as well. It's not like women are bad or anything. It's just this is the way that things have uh, gone down for various reasons. So, uh, but that is this, this sort of betrayal, this, this feeling that um, you, you can't trust your women, that you can't understand where their allegiances are. You can't understand why your women treat you with such contempt while worshiping groups that would treat them a thousand times worse than the worst thing they've accused you of. And it's like, it's gross and very disturbing. And uh, again, it, it can't be unseen. Mm-hmm. And and there are some men now beginning to stand up, uh, which has been really beautiful to see and, and be proud of their masculinity and their manhood, just like they're Americans now who are proud of being Americans. So some kind of tide is shifting that way. It, it seems slow, but it it does seem to be shifting a bit. And, you know, maybe in part to folks like you and uh, some of the, the other folks who, who, who put a lot of their work and energy into bringing these facts um, to the wider audience. Yeah, and, and people need to shield their children from toxic academia. You know, I, I'm I'm acutely aware that uh, if you know, my daughter goes to college and she goes into some artsy field and things haven't changed by then, it may only be eight years from now, right? Um, I I know exactly what she's going to be taught about me. I know exactly what she's going to be taught about me what kind of person I am uh, as the result of my race, as the result of my gender. She's, but what is she going to be taught about the moral content of my character based upon collective concepts like yeah. race and gender? Yeah. Um, I, I would view that as extremely toxic. Oh, yeah. Uh, a toxic yeah. substance to expose her to. You know, if she wants to become a doctor, then there's things, you know, she has to 
go through to, to become a doctor, and I think that's, you know, natural. But uh, I'll tell you this, I, I mean, I will strongly counsel her to stay away from the social sciences and the arts oh. these days. They are not about education anymore. They're about yeah. brainwashing, programming, and you're basically being absorbed into an ivory tower kind of cult that is just teaching you to hate um, an entire segment and uh, race and gender in the population. And uh, I would view that as an extraordinarily time. The, the letters I've gotten from people whose kids have gone off to um, to college and, and have fallen down this this infinite well of of leftist hatred and and abuse and so on, uh, it is it's heartbreaking. You know, what happened to my little girl? What happened to my little boy? You know, they come home, I don't recognize them. They're full of all these weird ideas. They criticize everything about me. I can't get through to them. I can't, you know, everything that happened before has vanished. I mean, it is, it's chilling. It's chilling. And I think we bloody well got to keep our kids away from these indoctrination camps. Yes. Well, and, and my daughter, who hates the West, you know, her, her IB program and her uh, uh, degree in colonial literature she hates the West. She thinks the West is just as good destroyed, better off destroyed. Um, uh, tragic. Uh, well, she doesn't. She doesn't really want to be free, then, right? Because if the West is destroyed, women's rights are destroyed. They're, uh, they're not around in yeah. the non-Western countries, in particular. So yeah. she's just like, well, I tried this freedom thing. I don't really think it's for me. Um, and, and this, of course, is particularly enraging because, of course, the women say, well, we don't want to have anything to do with patriarchy, so we're going to work very hard, as hard as we can, as hard as possible to destroy the least patriarchal, most egalitarian society the world has ever seen and replace it with what? It, it with what? Just, it beggars the mind. It just really it does. does. So. Well, this, of course, it goes back to the old suspicion that people have had for a long time. And again, this is generalizations, but the suspicion that women confuse feeling for thinking and that thus are more easily programmed to turn against their men and their culture and the culture that i mean did does she think she'd get to go to college in iraq yeah right well she spent three months in egypt by herself um studying arabic a few years ago and uh, what? Could, well, she came out of that experience and said, I never thought I was racist before, but she was um, sexually assaulted every day on the street, men groping her every single day. She felt smothered. And but she still wants the West to be destroyed because yeah, I know. and she still wants people from Egypt to come. I don't quite understand. I don't. I don't. Does she miss it? <laughs> yeah. And she's a bright young thing, too. So. Uh, uh, Wait, so she went, she went to Egypt. She was groped every day. Yep. And she's pro-migrant. I guess some are coming from Egypt. And she's against the West where I assume she was not groped every single day, at least not by white males. Right, right. You know, I, I wish I could. Ex I wish I could explain it, Stefan. I, does, does she miss the gro like? Seriously, does she miss the groping? You know, I, I think I'm going to have this conversation with her because I've, I've actually been thinking about it, um, and I'm wondering what her experience in London is. Which well, is, it depends where she goes, right? Yeah, that's very true, actually. Yeah. Depends where she goes. Yeah. You know, I, I made this uh, argument. Uh, I think more than a year ago that if Angela Merkel is very keen on 
uh, having all these Middle Easterners come in, it's no problem. She All she has to do is, is go and live in one of the no-go zones with yeah. a GoPro yeah. somewhere attached to her and then just broadcast stream for two weeks and just everyone can see what a wonderfully culturally enriched experience she's going to have. And uh, I think that would put a lot of people's minds at ease. Wow. Yep. Wow. Now, so she, she has a problem with Western men, and I assume that she thinks that Western men are sort of patriarchal and misogynistic and this and that and the other. Oh, but, you know, I, I'm going to say no on that one. And, oh, good. And she's in oh, a, a lovely, lovely relationship with, with a very lovely, hardworking um, young man. And uh, she appreciates and, and loves her father, and she's she's – I, I wouldn't say anti-feminist, but she she's, hasn't bought into that bit, at least. Oh, good. I'm, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that. that that's yes. absolutely wonderful. Yes. But she still wants the West to die. <laughs> you know, everything's our fault, right? So it's the propaganda that she got in the education that I arranged and paid for for her. So. Uh, right. Yeah. It's kind so, of a bitter pill to swallow, too, it isn't is a, it? It's a very bitter pill to swallow. So. <sighs> well, if if yeah. she gets her way, um, if the West ever rises again, it will be a never forget moment that it <laughs> was the treachery of women that had a lot to do with the downfall of the West. And that is something that I think we're all going to need to have a long chat about. <laughs> at some point but um speaking of which yeah. i should get on to the next yes, caller but i really really do appreciate the call yeah and thank you very uh, much. uh most enjoyable uh most engaging and uh, i hope we can talk again at some point okay thank you stefan thank you mm-hmm. bye-bye all right up next is afton afton wrote in and said is it necessary to have discussions about fundamental matters in person rather than through social media platforms like facebook I believe this question is response to a recent call-in where a woman was having a extremely emotionally volatile discussion with her close friend who'd kind of gone off the rails via text on Facebook, and you said, that might not be a great idea. So welcome to the show, Afton. Thank you. I'm very happy to be on the show. No, oh, thank you for calling in. It's a great question. Um, can I elaborate a little bit on the question? No. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but but uh, but only on Facebook. No, I'm kidding. Go on. Um, oh, did we just so, lose her? Oh, no, okay. I um the reason the comment stood out to me is because I often hear people say that they choose not to discuss uh matters of importance on Facebook because it always turns into a debate, which is kind of funny. Um, but then I took the liberty of asking people whether or not they thought it was necessary to speak face to face. And, um, everybody that I asked said that they do think it's necessary to speak face to face about, uh, fundamental matters because when you're speaking through text, you can't read people's emotions. Um, so I, I just think like the real question is when is it necessary to have discussions about fundamental matters? Um, in person rather than through Facebook. And and if I can elaborate a bit more, I'd like to. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Um, so I did a, a little bit of, you know, research and reflection. And um, so there are some pros and cons for social media communication, like some of the benefits are efficiency, 
um, because you can, you know, post things and then you have this sort of relative uh, subject matter to have the discussion about. So there are these, you know, healthy boundaries. Um, and then there's like anonymity, which is nice, right? So you can speak freely without having any of the negative consequences of people sort of, you know, personifying you uh, as as being not accepted in a social context. And then I'm sorry, that 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 got a little bit too circuitous for me. Okay. Can you maybe boil that last one down a bit? I, I lost the thread a little a little there. I just want to make sure I'm following what you're saying. Okay. So like anonymity is a benefit to communicating on social media because you can say whatever you feel like saying and you're not going to be sort of personified as being socially unacceptable based on what you're saying, right? So if I want to talk about my support of Donald Trump, but I'm afraid that I might lose my job or whatever, I can easily still speak about those ideas and uh, maintain my anonymity by doing it through Facebook or other social media platforms. Is that, am I still kind of? Okay, so... um... I, I followed that. The downside, of course, with anonymity is internet courage and uh, the general abuse that flows out of, you know, stuff that people would say to someone on, on text that they would never say to that person's face because they'd <laughs> be afraid of the repercussions. But okay, I can certainly get get that, but go ahead. Right. And then there's like the collaboration, right? So people can, you know, all come together and have a discussion about things uh, more efficiently than if they were to try to do that in person. And also, you know, with um, with the accountability, like there's a record of everything that's said for the most part online. So even if you don't have a person to hold accountable for saying something offensive, what they've said is still on record and it can still be analyzed by the audience and people can still have a discussion about whether or not what was said is true or accurate. Um, and then I guess like the, the cons of, of social media communication is like a lack of human connection um and this is an interesting subject because i think a lot of people interpret human connection as in some ways being able to know what a person's thinking or feeling and i'm well aware that we you know for the most part can sense what people are feeling but we can't really read people's minds consistently and so i started thinking about you know, why people actually want to have face-to-face -face communication. And, and I found that a lot of the time it has to do with this sort of um, implication of, of the threat of speaking to someone face-to-face. -face. So when you want to have a serious discussion, you want to speak face-to-face -face because you really want to hold that individual accountable for what is being said. Um, but I Wait, wait, why, why wouldn't they be accountable online if they would be face-to-face? -face. Well, they could be accountable online if they were giving up their identity, but they have the option to not do that, right? Like my Facebook doesn't have my actual name on it. And if people want to ask me about my information, they can. But, you know, for the most part, what I say is associated with this Facebook entity and not me as a person. So it's like, you know, I'm not going to run into someone on the street who's like, oh, hey, you, you said this thing on Facebook and you know, I'm upset with you about it. I mean, that's not going to happen unless I consent to giving up my identity. Does that? Okay, so you you would ha your avatar would have accountability, but you yourself wouldn't. 
Right. Well, the whole idea that I'm, I think I'm getting at is that it's always more about, you know, what's being said rather than who's saying it. Right. So people can think whatever they want about the avatar, but, you know, they've really just got the statements um, to reflect on. And I think that that's really effective because a lot of the time when, it, when people are having face-to-face -face communication, there's this fear factor, right? And I think it fundamentally boils down to you're afraid of the threat of physical violence happening, right? So you're having a discussion about a heated subject, like you might be speaking to somebody about Black Lives Matter and, you know, you're worried about saying certain things because you don't want that person to hurt you essentially and so you either run the risk right or you kind of manipulate and you either don't speak the truth or you kind of try to you know work your way around it and so in terms of in terms of face-to-face -face communication being like more accurate a more accurate representation of what a person's feeling i'm not sure that that's really the case because i'm not sure that we can actually read each other's uh, emotions and uh, and I think that when you're speaking in person there's this temptation to sort of personify what the person is saying and saying oh like what you're saying is is about you and not really about what you're saying whereas when you're just typing something on Facebook um, the statements just there and you can't really you know manipulate and say that you didn't say what you said or you know you you're kind of the statement's just out there. And so I think it's it's more effective actually to speak about fundamental matters in person. But obviously, you know, I don't think that social media can replace, um, you know, face-to-face -face communication. Sorry, sorry. Did you just say that it was more, it was better to speak about important matters person to person? No, I said that I actually think it's better to speak about important matters on social media because you have the protection of anonymity and you also have the record of what's being said and uh, I, I i just think that there are certain things that are necessarily communicated face to face like you know romantic things and aesthetic things things that don't generally you know cause conflict are more beneficial to communicate face to face right because what's life if you're not actually interacting with people in the real world but when it comes to fundamental matters of importance where what people are saying is very important. Um, I think it's better to have that record and to have that record be public and to allow, you know, large numbers of people to engage in the discussion and uh, share their opinions about, you know, what's being said, as opposed to, let's just say, going to a conference and having like a 15 minute question period or going to a cafe and, you know, striking up a conversation with an individual. Um, and I think just to, to finish on my elaboration of the question that, you know, communicating through social media takes away um, the option to express oneself physically, right? So you're limited to using words to defend yourself and it's impossible for you to actually get, you know, physically hurt. And has this occurred to you, Afton, that uh, you have been in a conversation about politics or something like that, and you've been threatened with physical violence in your 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 life? Um, certainly, as an adolescent, uh, but in my adult life, I've never necessarily 
been physically threatened, but I have had moments where I'm having political discussions with people and they get very frustrated with me and they look like they might want to hit me and um, they kind of are more able to make it a, a matter of my identity rather than what's being said. And in my experience, when I'm having these conversations via social media, I mean, everything I've said is on record. Right. So I don't. So, so sorry. You, so you said as an, as an adolescent, you were physically attacked for political, political or philosophical discussions. Yes. And what happened? Um, I think simply, you know, adolescents kind of have. Less no, no, no. What, not, not, no, what, what actually happened? <laughs> not what happened in, in some sort of an analytical sense. What was the physical thing that happened? Um, well, there were a lot of things that happened because I'm 27. So when I was an adolescent, it was kind of in the gangsterism age where, you know, rap was really big and violence was really big. Maybe it always has been. I don't know. So, you know, there are many situations. What happened? <laughs> Stop giving me the analysis. What happened? What was the physical thing that happened? Just so I can understand, because when, when I have too many words of abstractions, I kind of fog out after a bit. So I'm just trying to make sure I understand viscerally what you're emotional and, and physical experience was of being attacked for your political opinions or your social perspectives. Okay. So um, yeah, well, give me the conversation and what, what played out. Um, okay. Well, it was quite a long time ago, but the, I can think of one situation where um, I was in conflict with another person over some trivial matter and she happened to be African-American and I was accused of being racist and I attempted to defend myself by saying that I would never, you know, dislike somebody because of their skin color and uh, so on. And, and I was essentially just accused of lying and then was, uh, you know, beat up in the schoolyard. Um, but that's just like one by I guess you were beat up by blacks in the schoolyard not because not by blacks. No, it was a group of I mean, I mean, Canadian. Right. So it was a group of multicultural kids. But my conflict was with somebody who was African-American. And also oh, a bunch of different ethnicities beat you up because they thought you were being racist towards the black woman. Well, I think it was more for fun. Like, I think that they didn't even really care whether or not I was racist. It was just sort of. Um, like entertainment for them. And I guess, you know, that's the thing, like when you're interacting with people in person, um, you can't really, you know, end the conversation the way you can via social media, right? So on social media, if you have a discussion, a lot of the time people say crazy things, right? That are, are totally absurd and, and threatening, but you know, there's no actual threat because they're just online whereas when you're having these discussions in person if you like if you allow it to escalate it can get um out of hand i mean just today actually there was no no hang on hang on sorry just before we get to today um so but afton what happened when you were assaulted at school i mean what did the school do what did your parents do i mean that's astounding to me mm. well that's a whole other story but essentially nothing nothing in the you know the conflict escalated. What do you mean? The school, school The school knew you'd been physically assaulted, uh, but didn't call the cops, didn't... I mean, well, I'm not sure I, I understand. What worked from my recollection is that there was a large enough group of people that not one person, one single person could be held accountable. 
So no, but you you knew who who it was, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah, and I I do. So they would ask you. I mean, yeah. it's it's not like everyone gets off scot free if 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 a bunch of people beat you up, right? I mean, it, it doesn't dilute like that. that way. So I'm just kind of curious. No, it wasn't. What like happened that. after you were physically assaulted? Well, in that situation, I was I was you know harassed a lot as a child. But in that particular situation, that particular conflict, it continued to escalate. The threats continued to escalate. I became fearful for my life. I was in constant communication with the staff at the school uh, and my parents about the issue, and uh, my my but, mother. But what happened, though? I uh, mean, if you're you, you're fear, you, you, I, I'm I mean, I'm very serious about what you're saying here. I mean, you you're you're fearful of of being killed. Yeah. And and I'm not I'm not saying you're wrong. I mean, I understand these things can can escalate. I'm not trying to minimize what it is that you're talking about, but. I mean, that's really quite, I mean, so did, did you, you told the school about this wilding or this assault or this, this mass attack Yeah. Which and did they say, well, we can't do anything about it? Um, they, it was very complicated. Like what happened was the initial attack happened and then there was kind of this general announcement to the class about bullying and whatever. And then the threats continued. And then like the kids were following me home after school and chasing me and, and whatever. And uh, then the school didn't really communicate with me very much about it. They started communicating with my parents. But what actually ended up happening was before any of the adults could figure out what they desired to do about the situation, the no i'm sorry it's not that hard you were assaulted you call the cops and and people get charged with assault and they go to trial and if they're found guilty i don't understand why it's that complicated i mean if if i if i go and beat someone up at a mall i mean that people don't sort of wring their hands and say gosh what, what are we going to do we need to be in lots of communications and there aren't general statements about bullying in malls i mean they just don't I mean, I, maybe I'm missing something completely here, but... I don't think I thought of that as an option. Like, I really... But no, it's not up to you. You're the victim. You're the kid, right, in this right. situation. Well, it would be I... your parents and the school, uh, but in particular, your parents. It doesn't matter who, right? Anyone, like you would say, okay, we got to go down and talk to the cops. we got to, you know, figure out who, who, who assaulted you, and of course you know. Uh, and, and I'm just, why, why didn't any of that happen? Um, I really can't speak for the people that were employed at the school. I assume that my parents didn't call the police because I don't know. Maybe they couldn't be bothered. I mean, I I did endure abuse. No, I I don't think. I mean, come on, they couldn't be bothered. I, I'm not really sure what their opinion truly was about the way people treated me. Right. But what do you think uh, may have been their opinion that would have them? think that that would be too much of a bother to try and uh, do what was necessary to, I mean, okay, let's say that they didn't want to go down the route of calling the cops and figuring out who assaulted you and, and dealing with it that way. I mean, wouldn't they pull you out of that school? Well, uh, my parents had, you know, split up and at the time they were actually living together. My mother had moved back in with my father and I, I think that they just were spending too much money on alcohol and cigarettes to be able to afford to put me in any quality educational facility. So I was just going to the public school that was a, a walking distance from where I lived. Well, I'm not saying that they had to put you in some very expensive private school, but they would switch schools, right? Well, it, that's not what happened and I really 
don't know why. I mean, I was just focused on getting out of the unpleasant situations. Right? No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trying to. Sorry to interrupt. I'm not trying to put anything on you. Again, you're the victim. You're the kid. You're just struggling to survive in this pretty feral environment. But uh, I just, I'm just telling you, I'm, I'm sort of maybe I'm shocked because you're not or whatever. But this seems like kind of in the realm of normal for you. And I'm telling you from the outside, it's really not. Well, I don't think that it's normal, healthy behavior, but I do think it's common. Why? Why do you think it's common? Um, because, I mean, you know, bullying is an epidemic that's spoken about at schools. There's lots of different forms of bullying that goes on. People commit suicide. People are murdered. I mean, just today, right? Uh, well, that's not common, right? I mean, right. people getting murdered in school is not common. Well, I didn't get murdered. <laughs> I was no, I know, but, but you're starting, to, you're talking, I'm just trying to denormalize this stuff for you a little bit, That that's all. Well, um, I mean, there's a difference between thinking that something is appropriate and thinking that something is normal. I think it's inappropriate, but I think it happens enough. That sorry, what's inappropriate? I think that what happened was inappropriate, but I think that... No, 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 this is what I'm trying to get to you after. It's not inappropriate. It's illegal. It's yeah. immoral. It's assault. You could have been killed. You know, yeah. when you get swarmed and beaten up, your your head can fall and hit the concrete. You can hit a curb. You can go into exactly. a pole. Somebody can hit you in the nose and the nose bone goes into your brain. Someone can accidentally gouge out an eyeball. Like, really terrible things can happen when people are doing these crazy physical uh, assaults. So, no, inappropriate is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm showing up at the, at the opera with, with white socks on, you know. <laughs> this is not in that realm. Well, all right then. I mean, you know, but I do think that this kind of interaction is normalized and it doesn't only happen with adolescents, it happens with adults. I mean, there was a lot of uh, documentation of people who are resisting the Donald Trump supporters during the elections and, you know, they're, you know, mashed. Well, the left is violent. Yeah, we know the left is violent. But you say this stuff gets normalized. Often I'm telling you, stop normalizing it. I Do you think that I'm normalizing it? I do. I'm not saying you're saying it's okay, but uh, you don't even know why your parents didn't call the cops or get you to a place of safety. I mean, you had been physically assaulted and they sent you back with no protection. What's the protection? Oh, it's okay. They had a speech about bullying. Yeah, that'll help, okay. right? I mean, that's not good. So do you think I'm normalizing this behavior by acknowledging that it happens commonly and therefore it's a normalized aspect of our current society? Like, yeah. what should I say about it then? How should I describe it? Like, what place does it have in in our society? I mean, I understand what you were failed. Theoretical, system. you were you were failed. You were failed by the school. You were failed by your parents. You were failed by your community. You were failed by your extended family. Who should have damn well sat down with your parents and said, "Oh, she got beaten up. You better do something about that because violence is really terrible." And she's your daughter, and it's your job to protect her, and it's your duty as parents to make sure she's safe and is not being sent back into some ultraviolet hellhole where she's going to get assaulted again and where she's fearful of being murdered. Well, I guess, you know, some people give a shit and some people don't. I'm trying to get you to give a shit <laughs> I about you as a teenager. I feel like I give a shit, but I can't speak for the adults who are responsible for my, you know, social development um, through my adolescence. Like I, you know. I don't know. I mean, are these things that uh, you you haven't heard of happening commonly? I mean, I know you're very, you know, up to date with the news. Um, 
how would you how do you think I should describe it to myself if it's not something that's been normalized and it's not something that I should acknowledge as a horrifying betrayal of the primary job that your parents and your school and your society had which is to protect children well protect everyone from violence to protect children from violence that that's the primary job of the society and and in particular your parents right so that's that's their that's their job. Do you think that people can rely on society to protect them from people who are attacking them? Um, you oh my know, God, you 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 you're so abstract. I'm talking about your life and your parents. I'm not talking about society as a whole. And what do I think of general patterns in in violence and demographics? I'm talking about your life after your childhood. Can I tell you another story? I'd really like your opinion on. It's a short story. I am I am willing to be distracted, but I'm I'm bookmarking where we were. Okay. But I'm willing to be taken in a new direction. Go ahead. Okay. I was I'm gonna keep it short. I was about, you know, thirteen years old and I smoked cigarettes like my parents did, which I don't anymore. And this guy who had this this I grew up in Ottawa and there were Somalian refugees there, but none of us knew what it meant to be a refugee. None of us understood that anyway. So this guy who had previously assaulted me walks up to me and says, wait 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 was he he wasn't the guy who was involved in the previous story because that happened later right yeah yeah no there, there was okay. women actually in, in okay well then we need to start with the first assault because i don't know what that looks like or what that means well i just really want to just please okay so this guy walks up to me and he says give me a cigarette and i say no fuck you and he grabs me by the throat he's about 18 i was about 13 grabs me by the throat slams me up against the wall. Now I'm downtown at the Rideau Center in Ottawa. There's hundreds of- Sorry, was this the Somali? Yes. Okay. And uh, he starts, you know, just telling me how he'll, you know, whatever, hurt me. And I'm I'm sitting, I'm there up, off the ground in this guy's hand, right? But I'm thinking that somebody's gonna stop him because there's hundreds of people around. And I remember this lady walked by us who looked about the age of my school teachers and she looked directly into my eyes and she just kept walking. And it, it was at that moment that I realized, you know, how alone people are. And anyway, he just, you know, finished telling me what he had to say and stole my pack of cigarettes. And so that's an example of how disassociated people are from each other. And it's a nice idea to think that society, you know, owns the responsibility of defending people against the initiative initiation of coercion but the reality is is often not that well i think and i'm incredibly sorry that this happened to you i mean that is that is a, a terrifying experience of course and it doesn't end when he lets you go because he's around right right and um, innocent bystanders who are just apathetic to that and are just well i gotta as long as they t tell me cool. tell me if you think this is true and i'm sorry to interrupt but tell me if you think this is true if he had been a, a white man, do you think anyone would have done anything? Um, I'm, you know, that's a really good question. And maybe if that woman who looked me directly in the eye felt that the person who was attacking me was closer to her and reminded her more of people that have respect for her, maybe she would have attempted to intervene. But I, I'm not. I'm not sure because there are, and the reason I'm out, there are videos on on YouTube, but there's sort of these not not formal experiments, but just sort of thought experiments that people do, where they have a woman hitting a man, uh, both white. The woman is hitting the man, and everyone's sort of snickering and laughing and all that, and 
just rolling their eyes and walking past. But the moment that the situation is reversed, and they're roughly equal in size, the moment the situation is reversed and the man is hitting the woman, everyone like swarms him and stops him and, you know, threatens him and, you know, I'm going to call the cops and you're an abuser and right, all this kind of stuff, right? Well, I've seen, um, yeah. Because in both of the situations of assault that we're talking about here, there was race involved to some degree. I mean, the, the incident with the black woman was racial and it was a multiracial group who attacked you. And then there was a Somali guy. It's funny, you know, because I think a lot of times that people don't intervene, it's, it's because of fears of being called racist or, or whatever it is, right? I mean, um, there is, I think, a challenge for, for this kind of situation. I agree. I think that, um, you know, violence has become normalized in our society and, and people don't really associate horror with violence. They associate violence with power and freedom and it's totally, you know, backwards thinking. And so um, I think that, you know, it's, it's important to protect yourself um, when you are speaking about fundamental matters because a lot of the time those fundamental matters are requiring people to change the way that they see the world and the way that they interact with it and uh, for some people like that old lady who walked by me uh, and couldn't be bothered to to help me you know for for people like that they really only care about their own well-being and they don't realize that you know the well-being of the people around them affect them um just i'm just you saying violence is becoming normalized i'm just curious what your perceptions are in in canada well <laughs> what do you what do you think the youth crime rate let's just say from from 2000 since 2000 what do you think has happened to the youth crime rate um i think it probably you know swelled and then started to decline around 2010 but i think that you know the west coast is is very different culturally from the east coast and i'm not really sure why i'm currently living in vancouver and there's a lot less violence here and people have of course they're actually they say there's a lot more violence here because there's this gang stuff or whatever but i don't see any of that i'm actually in the city and the people i speak to their stories of childhood are nowhere near my stories i mean i can't tell most people about some of the stories from my childhood because it would scare them right and i've spent some time in edmonton uh, and I think there, it, it, there's a lot more violence. Um, and I think it, you know, had to do with the fact that when the boom happened, you know, people could get their driver's license at 14 and you could work at McDonald's and make, you know, 20, $25 an hour. So a lot of people just dropped out of school and you had these people who are, you know, highly uneducated and very wealthy. And so they were, you know, doing a lot of things that were, you know, contributing to. Oh, no, no, no. no. No, I'm so sorry. I don't know. Okay, first of all, um, youth crime has fallen 42% since 2000. And that's a steeper drop than the 34% decrease recorded for the overall crime rate. Um, a 51% decrease in the rate of youth accused of property crime, uh, break and entering, theft under 5,000. Uh, youth crime has fallen significantly. And listen, it's not because people make good money at McDonald's that they become criminals. Or, or that they become violent. Violence arises out of specific family situations. And, and I've got a whole presentation series and a whole bunch of interviews with experts. You can go to bombinthebrain.com. And I, I appreciate these explanations, but 
you're kind of flailing uh, and saying, well, you know, there was a boom and and people made good money at McDonald's and and they could get driver's licenses at 14. And um, I mean, this is not what causes this is not uh, what, what causes violence is and is is child abuse uh, in general and in, in as a whole. I mean, there are other minor factors of brain damage and and tumors and things like that. But uh, it is uh, and and so you know, my concern is that when you were talking about your parents drinking and splitting up and getting back together and smoking and not protecting you and so on. I hope that you will listen back to the way that you talk about these things. It, it appears to me, it seems to me, and this is why I'm glad we're having a conversation rather than typing on Facebook, that um, there's not much of an emotional connection. I, I, I'm not saying that's true. I'm just saying that's my impression of, uh, of, of talking with you. You know, you're talking about it, you know, like, like a grocery list, you know, eggs, milk, you know, alcoholic parents and no connection and getting beaten up and, and all that. Very emotional. I'm sorry? I said the emotional impression is very emotional. I mean, in order for me to associate, to connect with those emotions and speak to you about this, it, it would be impossible. I would just be crying. Right. Why, so why is that? What, of, what's wrong with that? Well, because then you wouldn't be able to understand what I'm saying. I no, I don't understand what you're saying when you have no emotional connection to it. And it's very rambly and it's hard to connect with it at a sort of very human level. And and so I do think, in my particular opinion, I'm just obviously some guy on the internet, but I do think it's important to connect with the emotions about our histories, not to normalize them. You have a very, I mean, look, you, your language skills are fantastic. You're very intelligent and uh, very verbal, uh, very verbally acute and, and so on. And that's great for a lot of things. But I think it also allows you to talk yourself in and out of stuff pretty fluidly. And I think it, it means that you kind of disconnected from some of the emotional truth of your history. And this may be, and the reason why I'm saying all of this uh, and again, please understand, it's just my opinion. So if it doesn't make sense to you, if it doesn't fit for you, just, you know, toss it out. But um, I think that this goes back to why you may prefer social media platforms. Because social media platforms are about information, not about connection, not about tone. The vast majority of human communication is non verbal. It's it's eye contact. It's a slight coloring of the cheeks. You know, in Japan, they're so afraid of shaming, you can actually get an operation that, that prevents the blood vessels from making your cheeks go red when you're embarrassed from, from working. So you can't be physically, visibly shamed, so to speak. And so it's gestures, it's tone, uh, it's, it's emphasis, um, or as the old saying, don't put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. But, um, you know, whether something's put forward as a statement or, or as a question, um, whether it's emphatic, whether it's tentative, uh, whether there's the, the pauses are significant, uh, the space between language sometimes can be as significant as, uh, uh, as the language itself, you know, like you get through a mountain, through the hole. And um, you may prefer social media platforms because it is less emotional, it's less connected, it's less human. And look, I've got no problem. I mean, I never said don't talk about politics uh, on, I mean, I have a Twitter account for heaven's sakes, right? I'm going to say don't talk about politics, don't talk about anything important on Facebook. This this actual conversation came out of a, a woman whose friend had gone kind of nuts and, and it was not the intellectual content of what they were discussing that was the problem. It was the fact that the, the, the person seemed pretty unhinged and that's not a good topic when there's very high and volatile emotions uh, in a friendship you don't do that stuff. I mean, if you want to share information online, of course I do that uh, a lot. Uh, and that, I'm not saying don't do that, of course. I mean, it would be ridiculous, but um, I've got a message board. 
So I'm not saying that at all, but what I am saying is that when it does come to very uh, important emotional topics, when it comes to saving a friendship, you don't do that by typing. I mean, in the same way we would understand you don't break off an engagement in a text message, right? When, when there's important things to be talked about, the face-to-face communication is the best chance you have of avoiding escalation, of avoiding misunderstanding. We are, you understand, we, we develop all of these nonverbal capacities for communication. We developed them as a species long before there was any such thing as let typewriters, let alone, right? I mean, letters used to be the challenge for this kind of stuff as well. But, um, and it, you, it can still be online. I mean, the, the face-to-face might be Skype. It, it could be a, a, a Google Hangouts. It could, whatever it's going to be where you, you at least get some eye contact, some tone in the voice, some uh, facial expressions uh, and all of that. It's easy to not be vulnerable and connected. Uh, on social media, with, with typing. Um, there is a brutality to text, in my humble opinion, that when people type stuff, it just, it sits there uh, on, on your phone or, or, or in your inbox or on your pop-up, whatever it is on, on Facebook. It, it sort of sits there and it kind of burns itself into your brain. So you say, well, it's good to have a record. Yeah, I mean, and I think for some things, I think, you know, if you're having complicated discussions and people, you know, can't backtrack because you've got their earlier things. Sure, I, I think that's that's important and that's helpful. But there is a wonderful fluidity to human conversations where something can be upsetting to you uh, in the moment and you talk about it being upsetting to you and you move on, but it's not sitting there on your phone forever and you will occasionally look at it and it comes back. You know, we're, we're designed to be fluid in our communications. There was no record of our communications through most of our history. And this is why I think the more face-to-face time we have, the better we get at not going too far and having a backtrack, the better we get at empathy, the better we get, we get at curiosity, the better we get at connection. And I'm somewhat concerned the degree to which a typing is replacing conversations. They're just different parts of the brain. They're different skills uh, to develop and they don't, it's fine for the exchange of information, for the, even the exchange of, of arguments about abstract topics. But when it comes to personal topics, when it comes to uh, a human connection to yourself and to others, there is no substitute, I think. Uh, and of course, you, you wouldn't want, you know, if somebody said, well, you can watch the whole movie or you can watch, you know, a movie you really want to go and see. You can watch the whole movie or you can watch 10% of the movie. I think you'd say, well, I want to watch the whole movie. And in the same way, when we communicate merely through text, we're losing about 90% of the context of, of what's going on. And I think when it's really, really important, um, don't, don't hide in the manageable and controllable, but arid and antiseptic biosphere of text, uh, it is time to break out the feels, get the eye contact, uh, and uh, really try to connect with people. Yeah, I totally agree with you um, in what you're saying. I understand uh, the importance of body language, but the fact is that we can't really consistently read a person's body language. I mean, there are certain, you know, meanings that we associate with certain gestures, but a lot of the time, um, it's, it's really important to give people the respect to tell you how they're feeling about something rather than just sort of, um, assuming things about how they're feeling. And, and just as you said, you know, speaking about abstract 
matters um, is fine online. And then when you need to speak about things that have to do with emotions, it's better to be face to face. But, you know, taking the example. Yes, but you'll get, you, sorry to interrupt, Afton, you'll get better at reading body language the more you do, the more you have vulnerable, connected conversations face to face. So saying, well, we can't perfectly read body language, that's a, that's a false standard, right? That's a standard of idealistic perfection. But you can certainly improve how you read uh, body language. You can certainly, you know, through trial and error. And, and we're very good at, at that. You know, dogs can do it. You know, and <laughs> dogs are very good at body language. And, and, you know, animals have all of these, you know, cats make themselves look bigger and all of that. So uh, I think it's definitely worth practicing because I still hope, of course, for most people, that, you know, the, ma ma the majority of my interactions occur offline. I mean, I do a lot of stuff online. I have these conversations, <laughs> you know, I do a lot of stuff online. But the majority of my contacts occur with, you know, friends, loved one, family, wife, daughter. Th th they occur offline. And one of the reasons I'm good at this uh, conversation stuff is because um, I, I do and have done so much of it offline. And I just really wanted to sort of make that case for people. When you have a challenging conversation with, with someone you care about, not just some anonymous, I mean, some anonymous person on the internet or whatever, you're probably not gonna say that's Skype or whatever, but if you do have a challenging conversation, uh, it is tempting to want to go to the keyboard because it's a more managed and controlled environment, but I think you're gonna fail more than you're gonna succeed. And uh, as you continue to have more meaningful conversations with people, you'll get better uh, at it and it gets more efficient. So um, thanks for, and listen, I appreciate your honesty when I sort of look, I took what may have looked like a bit of a left turn in terms of going into your history, but I'm always kind of curious why uh, these topics are very important to people. And I really understand where you're coming from in terms of fears of, of physical violence. Couldn't quite understand that to begin with, but that's why I kind of needed to know the history. So I really, really appreciate you you sharing that uh, with with me. Uh, that was uh, very powerful for me and really helped me to understand where you're coming from. So thanks, Mill, for the call. I appreciate it. I hope we can talk again. And let's move on to the next caller. All right. Up next, we have McKay. McKay wrote into the show and said, I am soon due to start training for the British Army. And I must ask this if it would be a bad decision for me. Has coming from a Mormon family given me a misguided sense of self-worth now as an atheist? Is this perhaps why I'm finding the idea of selflessness and loyalty in army life so desirable? That's from McKay. Hey, McKay, how you doing tonight? I'm fine, how are you doing? Good, so you've already enlisted, right? Uh, yeah, I'm due, uh, due to ship out in just under a month now. Why are you calling me now? I mean, <laughs> seriously, uh, I, I need to know. I didn't really think about the morals and ethics of it until now, and the Army's kind of been my last resort. As no, a but career. Mormon! You're supposed to think about ethics. This, I'm not Mormon someone, anymore. I'm an atheist someone... now. Oh, you're an atheist now. Yeah. Sorry, okay. Well, I, did, um, I don't follow all their. But that would have, I mean, you didn't totally abandon ethics when you became an atheist, right? Well, no, no, no. Like, I, the Mormon beliefs has, have given me a very strong sense of what's good and wrong, and I do thank the, my upbringing for that and my parents, but I think their lack of respect for intellectual, intellectualism um, has kind of made me confused about <laughs> purpose of life and all these other big topics, and it's kind of got me a bit lost now. And I, I, It wasn't until I recently saw one of your videos about you talking to a father who whose son was at West Point, and he said that your material helped him leave. And that wasn't until I saw that video about a few day, uh, about a week ago now that I started thinking about my own life in the military. And I come to this position because I, I basically failed in the free market. I went to university for two years. I dropped out. 
I um, what did you take in university? Uh, games design and games journalism. And why did you did you not like it? Um, I didn't like games design because of I, I realized everything I learned there I could be learning online for cheaper and without the very lefty liberal environment. Oh. <laughs> and uh, right. I, did, Let, I didn't let's like. De let's design depression quest too, right? <laughs> okay. I didn't like journalism um, because I learned how corrupt and how how repetitive the journalism industry is. All they do is they get. Wait, wait, wait sorry. Ga game design and journalism. Uh, well, I did one year of one course, didn't like it, tried the other one, and then I left after that. Okay. Um, but and what was it like in, in journalism? Which was the more lefty programmy one? Journalism, definitely. I had one. I had a couple yeah. of good professors there, but they they basically read out um, press releases and then rewrite them. One of my um, well, lecturers actually told us to go to BuzzFeed. She actually said that, and like one of the first lectures she gave was like, "Oh, yeah, this is a good website. Yeah, I should use this for information a lot." And it was like, they're t I, I paid nine grand a year to learn this shit. It's it's unbelievable. <laughs> right. Now, that doesn't mean that you failed in the free market because academia, not the free market. Yeah, no. But then um, after that, I worked at Subway for a year. And then I worked in... Uh, Wait, the sandwich place? Yeah. First of all, they make good sandwiches. Second of all, <laughs> Subway? Fast food? How come? Um... I mean, a year. It was only. Well, I spent five months living with my uh, my partner at the time, and um, they pressured me to get a job. And the only thing I could find was Subway. <laughs> okay, some partner. Reason. Now, see, I, I, I you, you feel free to break that out for me because that's just one of these words. It could mean uh, ten, tennis partner, dance partner. Are you gay? Oh, I mean, I just want to know. PC language isn't. It? Um, no, my, it was my boyfriend at the time. We'd been living together for about five months, and he was tired of me scrounging off and basically, which is what I was doing, to be fair. And um, he encouraged me to get a good job, and I looked around, and Subway was the only place that was hiring for some reason, so I worked there. I promise. I absolutely promise not to make a joke about a foot long. I, because that would be so <laughs> insensitive, I couldn't even tell you. So I, I uh, promise not to, not to do that. Um, so he said, get a job, so you got a job at Subway. Yeah. Why, um, why, why? I mean, you're a smart guy. You listen to this. Everybody who listens to this show gets both the blessing and the curse of me assuming that they're just very smart. Oh, That's I just the that. way it rolls, e even with the occasional YouTube comment. Anyway, um, so you worked at Subway. Did did you? I mean, were you looking for other things at the time, or I, what, what I was going off on? I like about twenty CVs, and they were the only people that got back to me within a month. So. Even looking online for jobs, that was the only thing I could find because all, all the other stuff required you need degrees and you need this and I, or experience and yeah. But didn't you say that you already know how to look things up on BuzzFeed? Isn't that pretty much the same damn thing? <laughs> um, um, how, how, what? Sorry, go so, ahead. So you did, did Subway for a year and, and then what happened? Um, he, me and him had a bit of a breakup because I, well, he kind of had an emotional breakdown because he was basically emotionally mature as a quadriplegic brick. And um, he had a breakdown. His parents. Wait, you, you might out. be turning on me. You might be turning on him a little bit here, my friend. <laughs> about as emotionally mature as a quadriplegic brick. Yeah, it's not my. Uh, it's not my simile, but yeah. Um, um, well, you just noticed this after a while, or? Well, I mean, honestly, the reason I, I moved in with him is because it was the only way I could get out of the university life without having to move back in with my parents because I had no other prospects at the time. So I kind of used him to get out of that, which was a bit using of me and not fair in me, and I admit that now. But I, mm. I, I hoped I could make something of it, and uh, I did for a while, but eventually it just fell apart for various reasons. Well, how did it fall apart? Infidelity? Um, no, I, I admitted to him that I wasn't sexually attracted to him because he was quite overweight, and he wasn't willing to 
help himself with that at all. And I just got sick of it. And I told him, unless you do something about it, we can't work. And he, instead of doing something about it, he got all upset and drank. And he drank like a whole bottle of whiskey, then took all his antidepressant pills and ran outside and ended up in hospital. Yikes. And then his, so did he try to kill himself? I don't know what that combination does. I, I, I don't know. I, at that point, well, I, I tried. He, and you, I tried you always him. had the George Michael boyfriend experience. <laughs> the Jesus. thing is, his parents later then came and blamed me for that. And I was like, I tried. I tried. To st- he went into the kitchen initially, and I had to drag him out of the kitchen and put him in his bedroom where he was safe because there were knives and stuff in there. I was worried about him. And he, he, he physically pushed me away and made it quite obvious he didn't want me anywhere near there. So I kind of left him to it. And then later, his parents come back and blame me for letting him go. So, I mean, I, I can get his, his whole female side of the family was very emotional and very, uh, very agitated and not very rational. And I can see where he gets it from now that I'm, I've met them. But and uh, was yeah. he this unstable throughout the time that you were with him? <laughs> when I first um, started dating him. No, actually. no, no, not not funny. Not, no, no, let's not do the ha ha. Well, no, I'm just, I don't know, I'm laughing at how ridiculous it is because I didn't see it at the time. But no, like, I mean... When I, when I first started dating him, he, he, he'd been off work for six months due to depression. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I wasn't, the thing is, all, all I wanted to do was get out of university. I wasn't thinking about, is this a good thing for me to do? And um, that's how I ended up with all that. Right. Now, I'm going to assume that your parents are still Mormons. Yeah. And are they bothered, I guess, equally or unequally by your atheism and um, homosexuality? Um, for them... We we have another gay family member, an uncle, and it, they have this sort of thing: is if if it's something we don't agree with, we just kind of ignore it whenever the topic comes up. And we'll be nice to people, but we're not going to address the topics ever because we can't have anything threaten our beliefs or our dogma, or we can't intellectually. Because I, I I will admit I'm smarter than both my parents, <laughs> and I don't even think I'm like super high IQ, and they they just can't intellectually engage with me on any of these topics, and that's another issue I think. Right, so your parents are emotionally avoidant, and you ended up with an emotionally avoidant guy. Uh, yeah. Well, well, yeah. All right. Well, is that an unfair way to carry? I don't want to tell you your life. I'm just this is all that popped <laughs> into my head. No, no, that's fair enough. I mean, I'm glad I'm. I'm. He's gone now, and I've been single for almost two years now. So that's good. Right. Now, single for gay men sometimes means a little bit different. Single means I'm not in a relationship, but I'm still doing the casual sex thing. I don't know. I haven't been with anyone for a while, and I'm, I'm bisexual. Sorry, not not gay. So I I, I love a woman. Wait, like you you had you had you had choice of the entire spectrum of human sexuality, and you you chose chose the hysterical fat man. <laughs> I've just not. I've never been good at finding women. Uh, I don't know why. It's just I don't know. I've I've always been bad because, at because because you like hysterical fat man. That 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 might have something to do with it. <laughs> I think it's. My parents don't have many friends outside of their religion, so they never taught me how to make friends outside of the people you happen to meet with in your kind of small world. And I've, I, I, that's something I've never known how to do. And even now, I oh, to meet new to, people, just just to make friends with people. Like I've never been taught how to do that, and I've never been good at it. And I've always been socially isolated my whole life. Do you find this conversation difficult? Uh, no, not really, because it's intellectual and it's engaging, and I can deal with that. It's just it's intellectual. We're talking yeah, about your family, your atheism, your gayness, your hysterical whiskey and antidepressants-willing boyfriend. Uh, I don't know that it's that abstract no yet. Maybe we'll get there. Topics. That's why. I have no one else who's interested in this stuff. And um, <clears throat> That's a shame. Uh, everyone is fascinating if you, um, if you listen. Mm. So, all right. And how do you know that you're bisexual? Um, I've dated women. I 
I, I like women. <laughs> I've just, I don't know. I, I think it also in this you, political climate. Sorry, sorry, go ahead. Just, in this current political climate, it's hard to find them, find someone that agrees with your rather conservative beliefs. So. Right. It's especially in the LBGQ XOX community. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Uh, a little, a little on the left side, if I remember rightly, um, <laughs> which is why they all love Milo so much. Um, so you, you are still in contact with your parents, but you avoid the the, the topic of your sexuality, right? That yeah, that just never gets brought up ever. I mean, like, uh, I mean, I, I do visit them once a week. I live in the same town as them now, and um, I, I I go over there and I try to talk about their religion. I try to talk about their upbringing with me and saying, you never respected my individuality or my thoughts or my ideas. All you wanted me to do was be part of your religion. And once you reject, once I rejected that, you kind of rejected me in a way. And um, I try to bring this up and they just go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well, we did the best. We, we did what we thought was best for you. And that's all I can get out of them. They don't want to talk about it. And I, I bring up um, the topic of Islam and how it's a, how you know the, the plight on Western civilization that it is, and um, they just they kind of laugh at me now because they have a bet going among all my family that whenever I bring up Islam, they they have a bet to see who wins something. Now it's just a joke to them. They they they're not interested in these topics, and I don't know. I've, I've sort of at this point just given up talking to them about it now. Hmm. Yeah, that's a that is a challenging conversational environment because you're kind of there, but not there. That that's, that's, I'm telling you this just, just between, just between us. Um, I mean, it's, it's the, it's the state of mind that bothers me the most. I'd rather have like my wisdom. I still have my wisdom teeth. I'd rather have my wisdom teeth out than be in that null zone of being around people, but not there. Like being this sort of empty, floaty, ghostly conformity bot, uh, where I'm just sort of desperately trying to have, anything it doesn't always have to be deep deep stuff but where i just can't be spontaneously myself um i i view that just my own sort of personal experience i view that as as literally time subtracted from my life you know like that's just like i might as well i might as well be dead as far as that goes uh, because at least at least if i'm dead i'm not bored <laughs> and that's sort of I'm just telling you that's my particular anathema is being in this environment where I, I okay I, I thought about this this week maybe thinking about this conversation maybe not but many many years ago oh in a land far far away I a friend of mine had a roommate who had a wife he was no. He was going. He was engaged. They weren't married yet. A friend of mine had a roommate who had a wife who was religious. Now, my friend and I, oh, atheists, of course, and he was horny. Right? So he was just, you know, whatever I got to conform to, to to get it. Uh, I will. Uh, and um, we were. I don't know. We weren't talking about his wife, and his wife was on her way over. His, sorry, his fiance was on her way over, but she wasn't there yet. My friend and I, we were just sort of chatting about stuff, and the, the topic of, of religion came up. I can't remember exactly how or why. And his roommate got really tense, really tense. And he's like, guys, 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 I need you to cool it with the rhetoric. I always remembered that phrase. It was so intense. I need to cool it with the rhetoric. Don't cock block me with facts. <laughs> Don't cock block me with arguments. Don't upset my fiance with reality. Um, 
penis penis needs Sky Ghost for access to eggs. <laughs> and I just I, I remember the, the guys, 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 don't you gotta cool it with the rhetoric. Um, first of all, cool it was projection because he was upset we weren't. Rhetoric is just a wonderful way of describing people's. And it was just that moment where I was like, wow, this is a guy I can't be myself around. And his wife is someone, his fiance at that time, is someone I can't be myself around. Now, I'd actually gone on vacation with these two guys. We went uh, to someplace really nice and warm for like two weeks, and it was really quite a nice uh, time. Ah, so annoying, though, this guy. I had This is back in the day where you had like magnetic tape. For video cameras and uh, all of the pictures in the video of that trip, which I really, really wish I had. Um, he just put it through security and it got wiped by the mag. <laughs> Whatever they do in security magnets, the X-rays or something. <sighs> anyway, oh well, another piece of archival footage from my youth gone, baby, gone. Because I have a lot of photographs from when I was younger. Because when you're young, you never really think you're going to need them, but when you get older, anyway. Um, but that was—I just remember that that night, just thinking like, okay, so I can't. You know, if, if there's even if there's just one topic that you can't talk about, then you have to self-censor and you have to sort of make sure that the the topic doesn't go in that direction or that doesn't come up or, you know, and it's just like, ah, who cares? I, I can't be bothered. You know, when I was younger, I guess it mattered more. But now that I'm older, I'm like, you know, this is who I am. If you like it, you like it. If you don't like it, well, <laughs> sucks to be you. You're losing out on something really great, but that's your choice. Um, and that is... Uh, it just it just sort of popped into my mind this week and and this question of socialization and and how you socialize i do think a lot of people go into the army because it's 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 guaranteed companionship right yeah yeah that's one of the reasons i'm hoping to find a a life partner there <laughs> so yeah yeah i don't know if a lot of people go into it because it's like a well-armed dating site but i do think a lot of people go into it because it's if you're socially awkward and everyone's ordered to be together and go through all of these extreme situations like basic training and so on, although I think it's gotten a lot nicer since the ladies came on board. But um, I, I think that there's this kind of bonding that happens simply by proximity 24-7 and exposure to extreme situations. You're just going to bond with people, right? You you don't really, in a sense, have to earn their proximity in the free market. They're just with you, stacked up like cordwood, and they go with you where you go, right? Uh, yeah, I suppose. Um, I mean, I, I've always tended to make friends with people around me. It's just that those those tend to die once you leave that position. And in the army, that's kind of a given, and people expect that anyway. What do you mean? Um, like, uh, well, in the army, from what I've read, the friendships you make there, they're they're as uh, tough as nails, and they, you know, they're you know a brotherhood there. But once you leave the army, it's not expected to. You're not expected to stay friends for years afterwards. It's just what happens. Really? That happens. That's that's from what I've read. I don't know if that's going to be my case, yeah. but that's what I've read. Uh, maybe. I mean, I just I know more about sort of Second World War friendships and so on, and they seemed to to last longer. But um, now, where? I mean, are you going to go on the front lines? Do you have any idea? I mean, are you going to pull triggers and kill people? I mean, what's going to happen? Um, I'm following my ancestors' footsteps and. Tr joining as a tank crewman, so I'll, I'll be in a tank shooting at Muslims at some point. <laughs> Probably, we'll see. What do you think of that? Um, what do I think about what specifically doing that? Killing people. Um, if it has to be done. It has to be done. It's a regrettable necessity, I suppose. 
I mean, mean I, if it has to be done, it has to be done. I mean, that's that's not an argument, right? I mean, that's that's a tautology that means nothing. What do you think about killing people? Now, please understand, I'm, you know, if it's self-defense and, and some people pouring across the borders and, you know, not legally, quote legally, right, then that's a different matter. But uh, if you're going to be sent out to questionable conflicts in the Middle East uh, and um, shooting at people probably armed by the Americans, come to think of it, um, or, or, you know, there will, of course, be, uh, I assume that there would be uh, occasional innocent bystanders and so on. I mean, you will be uh, taking life under orders, right? And look, I'm not trying to goose you. I'm just curious, genuinely curious, what you think of that. No, I have thought about this, and I just think someone who's read UPB or and and listened to it um, as well. Um, I think I I'm better in that position to make those decisions than people who haven't thought about ethics and morality before. Because if it's got to be but someone, you, won't in that... be, you know, you won't be in a position to choose that, right? I mean, you have to take orders, right? If they say blow this guy up, you got to blow the guy up, right? Um. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, a, all, all of your ethical theories, I think, I think, kind of fail in the face of the chain of the command. With, of course, the significant exception that if you're ordered to do something against the rules of war, against the Geneva Convention, or that you consider immoral or illegal, I think that you do have a duty as a soldier to, I don't know where you're going and don't tell me or, or where it is, but um, I think you have a duty as a soldier to um, push back against those illegitimate orders. I mean, that's true. I mean, uh, the IDF and the British Army particularly are two of the most ethical armies in the world because we have a values and standards code that says appropriate um, threat makes appropriate action. Like if a guy is running at you with a baseball bat, you don't shoulder your rifle and shoot him. You hit him in the head and you, you try and arrest him, you know. It's about – the British Army particularly has a very strong ethical code of not causing damage where it doesn't need to be done. And uh, the Israelis have a similar thing as well. America, not so much. And I think that's one of the problems that America gets the reputation of killing people so much in the Middle East is because they're a bit more uh, trigger happy than the Brits are anyway. Well, and a bit more aerial and <laughs> and, and uh, droney and kind of. Now, of course, I mean, the UK was part of the coalition of the killing that uh, began to dismantle Iraq, right? Yeah, yeah, Tony Blair directs into that, and it's not the good. <laughs> no. Now, that, of course, could happen again, and if that happens again and you are ordered to shoot people, uh, those would be legitimate orders, uh, and I don't think that you would be able to legitimately disobey them. I guess you could claim a conscientious objector and try and get out that way, right? Uh, yeah, true. But, um, I mean, normally if you're in a tank, you're normally shooting at people, I'd be shooting at your infantry first. <laughs> so it's it's... As, as a well, yes, but if you're invading their country, that doesn't make you the good guys, right? I mean, the French were shooting back at the Germans in May of 1940, but that didn't mean that the Germans were the good guys. Well, I mean, I think that's part of being a soldier is you have to give up some of your personal choice and ethics and let, put that in the hands of your superiors. And that's just a yes, choice but, you have to uh, make. Yes, but the superiors aren't in your head when you try to sleep at night. Will you be able to do that? That's the big question, right? Uh, I mean, there's been studies on this, like the Milgram study, which showed people can do things they wouldn't normally do when they're ordered to. Doesn't mean they're happy about it. Doesn't mean it's good for them. No. But, um, I don't know. I guess I, I can't say that for sure, can I? Because I haven't experienced that, and I don't want to make the pretension of saying, I, I know what that feels like. Do you think that the government is going to send you to kill people consistently, justly, fairly, morally? I mean, don't uh, isn't England, uh, it's a Britain, uh, wherever you are. I mean, part of NATO and and um, have to defend 
Turkey, you could end up at war with Russia. I mean, hopefully with Trump in power, that's not going to happen. But well, could. Trump Trump isn't going to be in charge of you, though. <laughs> um, no. What if you're sent to shoot Russians to defend uh, Muslims in Turkey? What if you're sent to shoot Christians to defend Muslims? That that's a very very conceivable scenario under the existing treaty obligations. Uh, I, I guess I have to do what the soldiers in World War II did and just do as you're told and get through it. Even if will you be able to do that? Goes against. I'm, I'm concerned for your conscience, right? I mean, if this is where you're heading, um, you need to know what the potentials are. Will you be able to do that? I, I I think so, and that's part of what training is for, is to get you to be able to do that. So I think by the end of training, I'll definitely be able to, yeah. But uh, how, I, how I feel about that is it's hard to say at the moment. Why? You can picture the circumstance, right? You're told to shoot Christians to defend Muslims. Uh, I mean, I know that you're an atheist, yeah. but does that mean that you're indifferent to... No, I, I agree Christians with you that versus Christian sorry, ideals are superior to the Muslim world overall. I mean, just look at our two civilizations. But um, I guess at that point, I have to put the morality in the hands of my superiors because it's not up to me. Which you cannot do. Nobody else can own your conscience. It's like saying, "Well, I'll, I, I'm really starving, but I'm going to have uh, my superiors eat my food so that I can get some nutrition." Your conscience is yours. Yeah. You, you cannot hand it out. It's not like a kidney you can give to someone. Your conscience is yours and yours alone. You would be potentially, if you defend Turkey, aren't you defending a culture that might throw you off a building for being bisexual? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, I mean, it could be me there. It could be some dumbass ADIQ guy who's never had a job in his life and is just doing that too because he had no other prospects. And I don't know where. What do you mean? I'm, I'm just thinking like if, if, if a job's got to be, if a, if a person's got to be in the army and it's got to be killing people, like there are, there are, I mean, not all the time, but there are going to be situations where my morality is going to help save lives, hopefully at some point. Oh, so. I mean. I mean, to, to take an extreme example, if there's some criminal gang, you should join it because otherwise some real psychopath might join it who would do more damage. Um, I'm, I'm drawing more parallels to how a lot of the German generals felt during World War II when they were told to round up Jews and send them to concentration camps. <laughs> and um, some of them were, you know, because some, some of the more moral good ones managed to help a lot of them escape. Whereas if they'd given that position to someone else, that that, that they would have just sent them all off to the camps. I'm thinking, come in more from So now you're talking about disobeying orders. So you're going to join the army in the hopes of disobeying illegitimate orders and therefore preventing disasters that somebody who doesn't have your conscience wouldn't prevent because they would just obey those orders. If I can get away with that, I suppose, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure the army's not aware of this thinking <laughs> in your mind. I mean, no one, no one joins the army to kill people. That's just part of the job, you know. Um, oh, come on. I'm not saying they do it to kill people. But you didn't, you didn't go and work at Subway 
to avoid sandwiches, right? I mean, that's the whole point <laughs> of the, the joint, right? Yeah, well, I went there because I wanted money, but, you know, and I'm joining the army because I want a, a career and I want to follow in my ancestors' footsteps and finally have something I can be proud of instead of working with immigrants. <laughs> and uh, What do you mean instead of working with immigrants? No, that's basically what working at Subway and Warehouse was. It was full of immigrants that... Because that's 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 Britain now. All the lower end jobs are full of people that barely speak English. And do you feel that in the army you won't have to work with any immigrants? Um, it's ninety five percent white people, from what I've seen, and most of them are quite well educated compared to the people I've been working with anyway. So it's already looking better. If for you, that. if you, if you had an opportunity, right? Because I mean. Your your parents, you can't genuine genuinely connect with, if I understand it right, and they're rejecting your sexuality. You know, you, you, you college sucked, the job market sucked, your relationship sucked. Is this like the last resort? Yeah, yeah. This has been my plan B for a while, <laughs> and uh, yeah. And um, you understand that you're willing to be paid to kill people in order to avoid failure, in order to avoid the possibility of failure. I suppose that's one way of looking at it, yeah. Tell me how I'm wrong. Because, <laughs> I mean, chances are I won't even be deployed. Because, uh... Royal no, 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 no. Come on, you, you, you can't, that's like Russian roulette. Chances are I won't blow my brains out. The question is, why are you playing at all? Because uh, someone needs to defend our country. You, you need a standing army. And no, 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 no. That's, I'm sorry to be, be so annoying. That's not your motivation. Right? Otherwise, you would have done it before. Your motivation, as far as I understand it, is you're lonely. You've got no success in the free market. Your education was not good. Uh, was not good for you. Right? was not good, good quality education. Uh, and you, you want companionship. You want to find a, a man to settle down with or a, a woman, I, I guess, perhaps. Um, it, it wasn't, I wish to be the shining wall uh, against uh, uh, all enemies, foreign and domestic, right? I mean, if you go back a bit, it actually, that was originally my plan. When I was coming out of high school, I was like, I want to join the army. And they said, no, you haven't lived here long enough. So I'm like, okay, fine. So I'll go, I'll go to university because that's what you do, right? And um, right. now that that's failed, I've come back to this plan that I want to do in the first place. Now that I've been here long enough. Right. So, yeah, I have wanted well, this for a while. No, okay. Um, so if you are... Uh, comfortable with the moral question, uh, surrendering your conscience to a hierarchy. Um, you know, I, I got to tell you, just, you know, dude to dude, um, maybe the women won't particularly understand this, or maybe they will. Um, I, I, I do believe that Europe is going to need some fighters. And uh, in the army or out of it? No, in the army. Oh, I think okay. that Europe is going to need some soldiers. Um, I think that uh, Europe is going to face a lot of conflict. Um, I think sooner rather than later. And I think it's going to be very sudden when it happens. And uh, so, I mean, I'm, I don't tell people what to do, obviously. And <laughs> I mean, I'm not the army. I don't give orders, right? I'm just asking the tough questions to, to make sure that you've got those bases covered in your mind. If you are willing to surrender your conscience to uh, external authority. And if you believe that authority is going to put you in the right place at the right time, pointing at the right people, 
then uh, that's your choice. And uh, th- I'm I'm not saying do or don't go, right? That's not up to me. And it would be pointless. I mean, it's your life, right? I'm just making sure that you've got your, as they say, your, your T's crossed and your I's dotted when it comes to uh, understanding what you're stepping into. Yes, th- thanks for that perspective. And um, it's given me a lot to think about. All right. Well, I appreciate uh, I appreciate your call, and um, I uh, I appreciate everyone's call. What a wonderful privilege! What a wonderful privilege! I mean this incredibly sincerely. What a wonderful privilege it is to have these conversations with you about these most important issues. I thank everyone who calls in and who opens up their hearts and minds to these questions and these perspectives. It is endlessly fascinating and enjoyable for me. I really, really want to uh, ask you for your support uh, in this uh, new year for everything that we want to get done this year, which is quite a lot, let me tell you. So please, please, please go to freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show. It's absolutely essential that we grow and bring more reason and evidence and philosophy in these challenging times to the world as a whole so freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show you can of course follow me on twitter at stefan mullen you can find me on gab and also fdrurl.com slash amazon if you have any coins left over from christmas and <laughs> go, go shopping we would appreciate that thanks everyone so much for a wonderful wonderful show i will talk to you soon <laughs>